The meeting will come to order. This is the November 16, 2022 Budget and Finance Committee meeting. I'm Supervisor Hillary Ronan, Chair of the Budget and Finance Committee. I'm joined by Vice Chair Supervisor Asha Safai and will soon be joined by Member Supervisor Chan. Our clerk is Brent Halipa and I would like to thank Jason Goldhammer at SFGovTV for broadcasting this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, Madam Chair. Just a friendly reminder for those in attendance in the chamber to please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still re providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, and then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. For those watching either channels 26, 28, 78, or 99, and sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. That number is 415-655-0001. Again, that's 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, and then press pound twice. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak, and those on the telephone should dial star three to also be added to the speaker line. Uh, if you're on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. Each speaker will be allowed up to two minutes to speak unless otherwise stated. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee Clerk, at brent.jalipa at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment uh, via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also uh, be included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Hey, and finally, Madam Chair, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors' agenda after Thanksgiving of November 29th, unless otherwise stated. Madam Chair. Can you please read item number one? Yes, item number one is an ordinance authorizing the Municipal Transportation Agency to issue uh, a request for proposals for a communications-based train control system to be awarded by a contract with a term exceeding 10 years, waiving the administrative a code prohibition against issuing solicitations for a contract for general or professional services for a term longer than 10 years, authorizing use of negotiated procurement procedures, stating that the award of the contract will be subject to the approval of the Board of Supervisors pursuant to the Charter and adopting findings under CEQA. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925 and press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, it will be your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, and we have Julie Kirsham here to present, hello, or to answer additional questions since this is the second hearing. Try to keep opening remarks very brief and really focused on the issues that uh, you raised last time. Um, 
as you know, the train control system that we have um, is very much on borrowed time, and fixing it is a huge priority. But I also really respect all the time that you're taking on this ask because how we set up this contract will very much dictate how successful we are um, as we go through this shared process as a city. Uh, next slide. Um, the technology that we're looking to procure is uh, the latest and greatest. Um, it is a modern uh, train control system. It is also very highly specialized software uh, led by national multinational firms um, that we need to um, work hard with up front to make sure that we're going to have a partnership that is uh, productive and that is successful. Next slide. Um, if done correctly, the train control program will have significant improvements for our customers. Um, most notably that uh, we will continue the excellent safety record that the current system has without being bogged down with the reliability challenges that we have that lead to gaps in service and uh, people being stuck between stations, uh, which is uh, a very low quality customer experience and can detract from our overall city and region's climate goals of getting people out of their cars. Um, the ask that we have today um, is to set up the contract so that we can um, have a negotiated procurement uh, with the suppliers and really ask for the things that we think we need to be successful, but maybe pushing the industry a little bit during the competitive procurement process. Um, they focus primarily on the terms we're going to be requesting for the support contract, um, specifically to try to make sure that we get regular software upgrades, um, that they are willing to commit to a vendor-managed spare parts inventory that rewards not breaking rather than uh, what we have today where the more things break, the more we pay for parts, uh, and also makes the performance of the system a shared partnership. Um, in some cases, uh, we are trying to replicate what other systems have and is considered best practice. Um, and in other cases, we are uh, trying to push the industry. And um, that is uh, particularly true for the software updates, which for many, many industries is now uh, standard practice, uh, but not something that some of our partner agencies were able to build into their, into their contracts. And we would remain committed to communicating often with this board um, uh, as those um, uh, discussions happen to make sure that we're really able to get the terms um, that we think we need for success. Um, the, the second piece of the request is to extend past a 10-year contract. Um, this is something um, that we are modeling after BART. I, I know getting more examples of contracts was something that you all asked in the last contract. Uh, the BART contract is structured this way. They have um, initiated 
negotiated up front for a 10-year support contract, um, as well as two five-year options. Um, there are not a lot of other domestic examples um, of train control projects at all, let alone you know, how their contracts are structured. Um, the European systems take this actually a step further. Um, they're negotiating not just the support, but also the direct maintenance. We are fortunate to have such a skilled workforce that we think we're gonna get a better quality of service if that is a partnership rather than trying to replace our current staff. Um, which would be more of, 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 a, of a European model. Um, so with that, I'm happy to answer any questions uh, that you have, and, and we do very much appreciate you considering this item. Thank you so much. Supervisor Sapai. Thank you, Chair Ronan. Thank you, Director Kirschbaum. I know we've had a number of conversations. There's a couple things that I wanted to talk about on the record today, uh, one of which is uh, I understand you gave the example of BART, one of the concerns I have, and I just want you to talk about this, uh, technology changes so quickly, and I understand that part of the reason why you're asking for this longer-term contract is because you want to have the ability to get one person, one, excuse me, one entity, one group, that not only has control over their proprietary software, but then is responsible for the upgrades, the maintenance, well, not necessarily the maintenance, but the changing out of the software, the upgrades, all of the things that ultimately you would be coming back to us in later years, and then having to do a sole source contract for. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because my main reluctance of giving approval for a longer term contract is it takes away our ability to negotiate but in this instance, it seems as though we're negotiating up front and demanding concessions as part of the larger contract. And so that would be the main reason why I would be supportive of giving a longer term contract. So can you talk a little bit about the proprietary nature of the software and then the ongoing ability to get the chosen contractor once it's put out to bid to agree to ongoing upgrades as part of this deal? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so be, because this is such a large investment, um, this is you know hundreds of millions of dollars that's going to take us eight years to implement. Once it's implemented, we want to get as much out of this asset as possible. So we're not going to decide 10 or 12 years from now, okay, we're gonna go to a different vendor. We're gonna make a commitment up front to keep this product up to date and meeting the needs of the of the city and county of San Francisco. We currently have had a 30-year relationship with a technology vendor, but the terms of those conditions have been very unfavorable to the agency because once we did the initial installation, any additional um, improvements or changes that we wanted to make had to be done as a sole source contract because they already own the product. Got it. So let me interject for a second. Just remind me what you anticipate the size of this contract to be. It's um, about us. The, the overall project budget is $600 million. $600 million. But, but and, the, and the supplier contract is only about 50% of that. So some of that work would be done by existing MTA, right? So 
if we're talking about actual physical construction type work, that's all going to be done in-house with MTA labor. The, Is that the, correct? The day-to-day preventative maintenance and um, kind of first-level repairs will be done by MTA staff. The actual construction work, um, mm-hmm. the, which is detailed electrical construction, will be done um, by a separately procured outside vendor okay, that will it. come to you as well. And that's part of the 300, and that will come to us ultimately. I just want to, again, flag for you because we've had, I see my friend Jonathan Rose here in the audience, We've had these conversations before, but any type of physical work, construction-related work, we've had conversations about project labor agreements, want to make sure that you're already thinking about that in advance. We are, If it's you. not the internal maintenance work that's already being done by your employees. So just to flag that in advance. So I, I mean, I would just say, I think this gives us actually a competitive advantage. Uh, we would like to see this once you actually have negotiated the, you're going to put it out to bid. You will, will bring that back to us for a contract. Please keep us informed as the negotiations go once a vendor is selected so we can see the terms of your agreement. We can't dictate those terms, but we can know the ultimate terms once they're there because we either voted up or down, and so it's better for us to know the terms as they go. Um, so I feel a lot better about this today than I did a few weeks ago if you're able to negotiate strong terms on behalf of the agency so that we're not stuck with a massive change order that's one way in negotiations. And I think that's what you've expressed to us today. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, And I just wanted to appreciate you for taking some additional time with this item. It is a, the length of the contract is, is unusual for this committee and uh, you've done a great job explaining the thinking behind it and, and the reasoning, which, which has made sense to me um, the whole time. So I appreciate it. Uh, seeing no other comments, we'll open this I, item up. I just have one, uh, one other sure. quick, quick question. Right I'm sorry. Sure, sure. Go so ahead. as you negotiated the terms, and it's a longer-term negotiation, does that then lock in the prices in terms of the type of work that's going to happen? to the extent of the 10-year construction project. So are we negotiating a price today that then is, I mean, are there? It it would have a, um, in in inflation or some sort of index linked to it. Got it. That's what I wanted to understand because if we're, I mean, it's great for us, but it might be harder to actually get someone to do the work in seven, eight years if we negotiated a price that's based on today. Because they said, well, nobody can do that. So the indexes can help protect both parties from that volatility. That's, that was my last question. Thank you. Thank you so much. We will now open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now to speak. Now for those listening remotely, please call 415 Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press pound and pound again. Once connected, press star 3 to enter the speaker line, and for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and that will be signaled to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, uh, Mr. Lamb, can you unmute our caller, please?
Can you hear me now? Please begin. Great. David Pilpel. Um, good afternoon. So I just wanted to repeat very briefly my comments from the last hearing a month ago. Um, I believe there may be some benefits from the uh, train control upgrade uh, project, but it does not replace uh, transit planning or the rail service plan that's been promised. Um, I asked uh, last time and haven't heard an answer, has there been an RFI or RFQ? I hope there is a level of interest from more than one potential vendor, and this is not headed uh, to a sole source uh, procurement. Um, next, this project shouldn't facilitate forced passenger transfers at Church and Market or West Portal, nor allow three car trains on the N Judah or elsewhere on the street. I have no other concerns on the procurement approach here. Um, I do note that the world is more integrated now between facilities, vehicles, and technologies, which had been uh, separate uh, ideas in the past, um, are much more integrated now and are uh, very interdependent. Um, and I can follow up with appropriate MTA staff on other comments or questions that I might have. I'll just also add very uh, briefly that I tried to interact with the uh, Sean Kennedy uh, yesterday following the MTA board meeting, and he apparently did not uh, take kindly to some of my uh, comments and doesn't want to communicate uh, further. So I may have to follow up with Julie and see uh, what else we can do to um, establish better lines of communication between the public and MTA staff. Thanks for listening. Mr. Lamb, do you have any more speakers in the queue? Madam Chair, I complete our, our uh, queue. Public comment is now closed. I would like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, co-sponsorship uh, co noted, Mr. Vice Chair. Uh, on that motion to forward this ordinance to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan? Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three yes. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number two? Yes, item number two is a resolution approving the second amendment to the transit shelter advertising agreement between the city and county and Clear Channel Outdoor LLC to exercise the option to extend the agreement for five years from December 7th, 2022 through December 7th, 2027, adjust the minimum annual guarantee payments as well as the administrative and marketing payments and increase the maintenance and service obligations of Clear Channel. Members of the public are joining us remotely and wish to comment on this resolution. Please call 415-655. 0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you so much. Good morning, Jonathan, or good afternoon, Mr. Rewers. Thank you. Chair Ronan, committee members, Jonathan Rewers, uh, Chief Strategy Officer with the MTA. So today we are going to talk about our transit shelter program and the second amendment to a 20-year contract um, with Clear Channel Outdoor for the um, advertising revenue and maintenance of the program. What, what I do want to make sure to cover with the committee was this was a seven-month negotiation process. Um, it has been a critical priority for the agency to focus on the maintenance component and the experience of the rider out in the street, especially as we try to reopen the system. Um, so some key elements were looking at the minimum annual guarantee, so the revenues that come to the MTA via advertising on the transit shelters, 
through the history of this contract, the city and county of San Francisco has made the profit. Clear Channel has made no money. The city has made all the profit on the contract, and I'll talk about that a little. Um, as part of the contract, the maintenance of our transit shelters is included. We've shifted to an asset management approach. We will get additional advertising as part of this um, program, and ultimately, the city and county will become the owners of the transit shelters at the end of the contract. So you'll see here, um, these. this is the proposed minimum annual guarantee as part of this update. Um, it is reduced from the original contract, and that's noted in the BLA report. We don't dispute that in any way. However, advertising revenues have never hit those levels. If, in fact, if we were trying to maintain the average over the course of this contract, we would have to increase advertising revenues by 60, 70, 80%, which we felt wasn't achievable. So this uh, proposed MAG keeps us in line with the average, which is about 10.6 million over the five years, and that matches generally the average over the life of the contract. This also includes the period of the pandemic, and you will see that it increases over the period of time. So that's a total of $56.4 million for the agency. Um, in addition, what we did was, in exchange for reducing the requirement for the MAG, which was largely focused on cash, again, cash that has never been received through this contract, we did ask Clear Channel to increase the maintenance. Um, so this includes like taking care of graffiti, making sure things get cleaned up. The current contract is that the maintenance occurs on every shelter two days per week. This will change as a result of the approval of this amendment to three days a week. So that is a 50% increase on maintenance response time, making sure things are clean in the streets, and so hopefully we'll see that um, after this is approved. We'll also focus on the platforms exclusively five days a week, so those are the, the high platforms along our, our Muni Metro system. Um, the other thing is um, equity was a key component of trying to kind of fix this contract over 15 years, and especially the service. So two things that we did was um, the prior contract was managed by a contract administrator, and again, that was largely focused on revenue, you know, gaining dollars for the agency. But again, we really want to take a maintenance approach to this program. So Lisa Ising, who's joining me here today, is our superintendent of, of platform and shelter maintenance. She has 20 years of experience in field maintenance, and that's what we want. We want somebody at the agency level focusing out there on the street, being responsive to concerns from your offices, 311, and the public, and actually being out in the field. So what we've done is we are currently conducting a condition assessment of all of the shelters across the city. That is to be done by an independent contractor, not by Clear Channel themselves. There's a scoring criteria associated with that, and if shelters do not meet a minimum standard, they either need to be cured through repair or full replacement. And so we're hoping to get that done by the end of this fiscal year, so that's very aggressive. But again, we want to welcome people back to Muni, and so this is the time we want to get that done. So we estimate that refresh will be at least $3 million of capital improvements. And then in addition, we're going to be adding the digital shelters across the city in additional locations. That's another $3 million capital investment that is not part of the current contract. Um, we also talked about advertising. Um, we, again, are trying to welcome people uh, back to the Muni system, so we do want to send positive messages and tell them about the opportunities and places that they can get to in San Francisco using our system. We did a pilot campaign around that, and we actually have shown that it's, it's been effective. 
In the past, we've been able to get advertising as it became available. This will now allow us to have advertising when we need it and where we need it um, at an amount of $1 million annually through the course of these five years. So that's advertising, PSAs, and partnerships with other city departments. And then at the end of the contract, the current contract requires there to be an appraisal at the end of the contract period by which the agency would then have to purchase the shelters. So we are not the physical owners of the shelters. Um, Clear Channel has agreed to give ownership um, to the MTA at the end of the contract. So that's about a book value of $6 million of assets that will come to the agency at the end of the period. So the proposed amendment would guarantee $56 million in revenue. That's assumed in our five-year financial plan a 50% increase in maintenance, $6 million in capital investments, a $1 million a year in advertising, and the city will become the owner of the um, shelters at the end of the contract. So that is quick, as quick as I can make it, and I'm happy to take any questions. Okay, thanks. We'll get to questions after hearing from the budget and legislative analyst. Thank you, Chair Ronan, Nick Menard from the budget legislative analyst office. So item two is a resolution that approves a second amendment to MTA's agreement with Clear Channel. The amendment generally exercises the existing option to extend the agreement five years through December 2027, uh, decreases revenues to MTA for those final five years relative to the existing agreement, and then changes Clear Channel's uh, maintenance responsibilities. You can see on page five of our report um, the fiscal impact of these changes, so the Total revenue change is $64 million less than what's, con what's actually in the contract now. Um, and that's offset in part by the free advertising, the transfer of ownership to the, um, of the shelters to, uh, to the city, an increase in uh, maintenance cleaning schedules from two to three times a week, and then in, uh, a digital advertising uh, capital investment to fortify about 50 digital displays in transit shelters. Um, I also want to kind of put a finer point on the changes in the maintenance responsibilities here. So it's true that the cleaning frequency goes up from two to three times a week um, in the shelters, but it decreases from daily to five times a week on the platforms. And then it extends the period from the 15 days to 45 days to replace destroyed shelters. So it's not, there's a kind of overall change in maintenance responsibility relative to the existing agreement. Um, and in addition to that, the, uh, the amendment reduces the security deposits um, of the, the performance bond um, and the letter of credit that Claire Channels are required to carry. Right now, they have a $10 million performance bond uh, that would be issued if they um, fail to meet performance on the agreement. One final thing I would note is that, you know, my read of these amendments is that there have been problems with Claire Channels' performance. Um, and I know that there's a backlog of shelters that need to be maintained. We never got a record of that maintenance, even though I, I know it's required to be reported to the city. So I can't really opine on that. Um, so I think because there's a revenue decrease, um, you know, we consider approval to be a policy matter for the board. Okay, thank you. Do you have questions? Um, yeah, is Clear Channel here or great? and just kind of wanted to understand the backlog of the shelter, um, why it wasn't the record provided, and how can we make sure that we do have those records before uh, we move forward? I'm sorry, I was walking up. I didn't hear about the records. 
No problem. Just wanted to understand, you know, I think that what the our budget and legislative analyst has mentioned about sort of the backlog for the shelter maintenance and trying to understand, better understand the partnership that we have with Clear Channel in terms of shelter bus shelter maintenance. Could you ex just talk a little bit about that and how can we get those records? Yeah, we can get those records. We, we, we have them, so I would say that we are in full compliance with the current contract requirements. So as Jonathan explained, the um, twice um, a week cleaning, we've in fact done more. We put gar barcodes on the shelters and scans. We have before and after photos, and they are time-stamped, so we've met all of those things. We've responded to, to um, 311s. When we originally took the contract over, we invested $56 million to put in brand new um, shelters throughout. We do capital along with that. So um, I think that staff would uh, let you know that we are compliance and we can provide the backlog. I didn't see that. I would also note that a point of clarification, actually in addition from going from two times per week cleaning to three times, we're increasing the work week from five days a week to six days a week. So we're gonna work um, Monday through Saturday as opposed to Monday through Friday. So that uh, that's kind of a clarification of what's going on there. And in terms of the cleaning on the platforms, those were always five days a week. So that stays the same. I just wanna kind of clarify that. Sure, and um, you know, I, I think we, we as a city has been in partnership with Clear Channel for a long time, and um, we have many different contracts with Clear Channels, and this is just actually one of them. Um, what are the contracts that we currently have with uh, Clear Channel? Sure, there's a, we have a contract um, for the, the, the entire city, so there is a contract with the airport, and there is a contract with the news racks. And, sorry, what was the second one? The news racks. And, and what is the news rack contract? The news rack contract is with uh, DPW. Um, I'll try to explain it. Um, it was a result of a judicial decree. The publishers sued the city um, for the rights to distribute their, their newspapers. Um, the city issued an RFP um, for a company to come in, put the capital, so there'd be a uniform stand and different things for the, so, so wind and things like that would not blow them all over the street. So we won that RFP and have been administrating that. Um, I'm seeing that uh, both, it's it telling me here though, um, both the, this contract and it sounds like the news rack contract too are both expiring. The, this contract, this amendment, with the extension would take it through um, 2027. Uh, so that's this one. And the news rack contract will expire in October of 2024. Understood. Right, so I suspect that will not get renewed based on what's happened with technology and how media is I consumed. See. So it's just, it's gonna run its course, but it's like a three-legged stool. Uh, DPW, the publishers, and Clear Channel each have a, a, have a stake in the uh, contract. I think, um, so Chair Rona, I, I think because uh, because it's a re reduced payment and it's rather large amount of reduced payments of well over $50 million, I understand it's for the next few years. Um, 
And I, I think that because the BIA has mentioned that this is a policy matter for the board to decide, I am more comfortable that in the event it's more having more records of maintenance records that allow us to uh, to have the budget legislative analyst uh, office to look at those maintenance records to determine uh, just sort of um, in exchange of this reduced payments and, and, and help us better understand and analyze the situation, whether, whether this re reduced payment makes sense uh, in the best interest of the city um, to just verify what, what you have negotiated. I, I think that's where, where I'm at and, and I hope that's okay that if we can continue this um, until we receive the records and, and I will look to you. I'm not sure, honestly, I'm not sure the records that he's referring to. I, I don't know what records he's referring to. Uh, do you want we to clarify? We can provide the scans. Mr. Menard? There are, and there's in the agreement, the contractor is supposed to, um, you know, re you know, review the shelters over a certain period and respond to um, their condition or request for maintenance, you know, within certain time periods. And then that's tracked within a database. That's all in the existing contract that's maintained by the contractor. So, and I think reviewed by the by MTA. I think we, we spoke about it. I asked for the records. You know, this was, we put together the report, you know, in a short turnaround um, as, you know, just as part of the legislative process. So I don't have, I don't know, like what, so the, to be clear on that, we, we, meet with, we meet with staff monthly and provide them monthly updates on, on the scans which verify the cleaning. So that has been an ongoing part of what we've done. That's okay. And I think that like that's understandable. And I don't think that's really on clear channel. I think it's more like SFMTA needs to provide that record that was requested. And so I think today is more really just to SFMTA that um, in order for me to support a reduction of payment of well over $50 million in the interest of the city, that I think it is our job to verify that records uh, with budget and legislative analysts. And I think that we will, I will ask to continue, but I would look to SFMTA, not, not so much a clear channel, but actually SFMTA, since you're in charge of the da database, that how much time will it take for you to turn over the record, but also to the BLA to make sure that we do actually have the time to re evaluate the records before we move forward. And I think the second question that I have is that, you know, in the events that we decide that we, we need a little bit more time, um, what is our time frame that is not to jeopardize the, um, the this agreement? Thank you. Um, I, I, I agree. I don't think there's any issue, and I, I think we can provide the, the maintenance records within one business day. So Clear Channel can give us the scans. It's kept in a database. We'll, we're happy to send that to the BLA. But, but I do want to be, since the MTA is the neutral party here, Clear Channel's our partner, and, and of course, um, supervisor, we want to negotiate in, in the best interests of the city in this particular case. So we want to talk about response time. So you know, Bob is correct that the response time and the contract compliance is correct, but whether or not that's sufficient service for what the system requires, I think is a fair question, which is why we're trying to increase it to three days a week, why we're asking for the follow-up. We did not change the liquidated damages requirements at all in the contract, and so we will, we will follow through on those. Um, on the payment side, I, I do want to be clear because the BLA is framing it in, in the form of reduced revenue. Clear Channel um, 
receives all of the money from the advertising that occurs on the shelters. And then that advertising pays for the maintenance of the shelters. You know, that, that's part of the service component of the agreement. And then they make a payment to the MTA. Based on the estimates of the actual revenues, Clear Channel will make zero dollars. They will essentially pay us, pay the city and county of San Francisco for participating. So I, I do want to be, again, being the neutral party between the city, you know, the MTA, and Clear Channel. The, I, I want to make clear for the record that between the period of the contract, 2008 to 2019, so that's pre-pandemic, the average amount of revenue from advertising on all of the shelters across the city was $11.68 a year, well below what, what the MAG would be required at this point in time, which would be $21 million per year. So that would be an 81% increase in the MAG. In the period, you know, if we just include the pandemic, which, you know, no one anticipated, so those were lower periods, lower years for advertising, the average was $10.65 in revenue from advertising during that period. And to be fair, I really looked at it. The best years, if you take the absolute best years of advertising revenue and just exclusively look at those, the revenue generated was $12.8 a year. So when, when we negotiate on behalf of the city, essentially asking for a MAG payment of $21 million a year when the revenue generated is roughly $12 million in the best year is where we were trying to balance maintenance, service to the community, but also getting revenues for the city and for the MTA. So just, just wanted to make sure to make that Thank clear. Thank you. And, and I'm not, uh, I think in, this, in the, in the yep. sense that us too just wanted to have a verification from uh, BLA since they didn't get a chance to take a second look of the records. And that's exactly the process, right? The yep. process is you present this and then we help we, with the budget and legislative analyst offices help, we evaluate uh, and, and make a determination, sort of a second opinion, and perhaps that since you're so deep in the trenches in this conversation, we're, we're, we will give a fresh eye to the records that are provided. Uh, and, and as you have been through this process before, and yeah. more often than not, the budget and legislative analysts will agree with you and be able to either recommend and, or to say that it still remains to be uh, a policy matter for the board, and then we can determine whether this is a good value or not for the city. Um, I, I don't think that in any way we're trying to negotiate the terms no. and conditions. What we're doing is to ask the BLA to help us for what you're offering as a terms and condition is, is the best interest of the city. I have no doubt that you perhaps suffer some loss, um, and this is a way to make sure that all parties in this contract uh, – get what they deserve. And, and in this case, we're saying, what, what, what was actually interesting to me, though, what you just said, kind of flagged for me, based on what you said, mm -hmm. is that this contract and this condition and, and, and terms and condition may not still meet the demands of the services uh, that, it's, that we need as a city, mm -hmm. um, which is I'm actually now, you have flack, because you have flack for me, now I'm really interested to find out what is exactly the demands of the, the, of the services that the city actually require um, and what is the gap between that. And all the more reason why I look forward to seeing the records, look forward to seeing uh, some assistance and, and analysis from BLA and help us determine this further. Uh, if you say it's turnaround one business day, I don't know if, well, next week I do not think that we have um, a committee, um, maybe so it's perhaps a, a week after, in the event Chair Ronan uh, is in agreement for continuance, but, but that's kind of what I, I am leaning toward. Thank you, Chair Ronan.
Thank you. So we, we can get that, we will get that information to the BLA um, this week. I, I'm sure we can get it within a business day because we have it. And I actually do appreciate the due diligence. I, I appreciate the question. And one thing I do want to add about this amendment, because I'm, I'm glad you, you brought it up, that that flexibility that doesn't exist, just pure contract compliance, we added that in this amendment. So if we need to go to four days or five days, we actually have the ability within this agreement to do that. And I think the condition assessment that we're doing, that's required in this amendment, but we're doing it in advance of it being approved, just so we have that data, will answer those, those questions. So thank you very much. So a few questions. Um, I think, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting how this works, you know, uh, through the conversation, but I just want to make sure I understand. So for the MAG payments, Clear Channel basically only pays to the city what they receive from advertising revenues. They, they, so they're not required to make the payment that's specified if they don't make those revenues. Is that correct? No. So as an example, let's take this is, this is what occurred during the pandemic. So let's say as an example, they make $6 million in advertising revenue, but the MAG payment is $11 million they have to pay $5 million more than they made. And through much of this contract, Clear Channel has actually paid more to the city than they have collected in advertising revenue. So in the, in the form of this contract through the life of it, and even with this amendment, the city and county of San Francisco will be making the profit. Got it. Um, second question. I'm confused between what the budget and legislative analyst said and what... Bob said, which I'm sorry, I didn't get your last name. Sorry, if you could come. My name is Bob Schmidt. Schmidt, Bob Schmidt. Um, and, and what you said. So the BLA said that there's a reduction in platform maintenance from daily to five days a week. But you're saying there's an increase? What I'd like, yeah. So the, the length of the work week is going to increase from five days. So we're going to have people working on the streets of San Francisco six days a week, Monday through Saturday, as opposed to Monday through Friday. So that's an increase, right? And, better and that's for cleaning, you know, yep. all over that, the city. That's for street furniture and low and high rise platforms. We're gonna have people out there. We'll, we will also have, we're adding a night shift as well. So in addition to the, to the um, increased frequency, there's greater coverage. But there is a reduction in the days of week that the platforms... No, no, that was always... We always had a five-day work week. We always cleaned them five days a week. We're going to continue with that. That is a... That's, that's just... I, that. I would say, again, the contract was written now 16 years ago. I, I think daily was just meant to think about that our daily operations when the contract was written, but the actuality of maintenance and shift work, it's been five days a week we're going to go to six as part of this additional staff and additional people. That includes the, the raised platforms, but also includes the shelters in the street. So to me, it was just right-sizing what actually was occurring operationally. It, it wasn't a reduction. They're, they're, from day one of the contract when it started throughout, it, it's, it's been that through, through normal operations. Okay, and I'll just, I'll just say for me, you know, there are parts of this renegotiate a contract that I very much appreciate because to me what's most important is that we have working, maintained, uh, nice bus shelters. Uh, as you all know, the conditions on the streets of San Francisco are, are not good. 
uh, not in every neighborhood, but certainly in the neighborhoods I, I represent. Um, and, uh, you know, the more that we could do to improve those street conditions, which includes the conditions of bus shelters, the better. And that's the, the most important part of this contract to me. So it's, uh, you know, the reduction uh, bothers me less than the, um, the, the reduction in the mag than if there's any reduction in services. And so... The other piece of this that I don't love is the increase from 15 days to 45 days on fixing the destroyed shelters. And I'm wondering why, why, we, why we increase that time. Yeah, uh, th thank you. That's, that is a good question. Again, I think that's just opera operationalizing the actual. Again, after 15 years, there's, there's a couple components, and, and Bob can, can add to that. One is just the supply and demand of getting glass, getting the materials, getting the people, getting the contractors together. So that's on the clear channel side. The other component of it also has to do with our operations and transit. So very often we have to get a clearance. We have to work with the TMC. There can be some disruption, again, when we're fixing the shelters in real time and services continuing. So that needs to be scheduled on top of, you know, normal contractor work in the city, city projects that occur just like that when we do shelter work that occurs. So between the lead time of getting materials and, and the amount of materials required, getting the contractor and staff together and also following up, that, that's more of, it, it takes 45 business days to get that done and get it complete. But I do want to say that is for shelters where we have like the whole thing's destroyed and we pretty much need to build a brand new one from scratch or do major renovations. On the cleaning, removing graffiti, the day-to-day -day experience of the rider, that's where we're really pushing to increase the service. And then Supervisor Chan, your question, once we know in real time like certain lines or, or certain parts of the city need more, we have the flexibility in the contract to increase the maintenance that would be required in those areas of the city. I would just add Go on, ahead. I want to kind of put it in context. We're talking about destroyed shelters, to Jonathan's point, when literally a vehicle crashes in, takes it out. That happens about 10 to 11 times a year. So it's a very small number, right, in, in terms of what, what happens with it. Um, and I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but we have a lot of inventory and supply, but there are eight different types of shelters out there. So if we have those at the ready, we do turn it around in a very quick period of time. But if we don't have them, then we've got to manufacture them. And a nuance is because of the hills of San Francisco in the incline, they, can't, they have to be custom built for that specific incline when they go in, if you think of the lower side styles and the upper. So there is some manufacturing time, there's some permitting time, and we're just correcting for what actually happens. And when you think of 1,100 shelters um, in the system, and then you know, a couple hundred high and low rise platforms, 11 is a very small, small part of this contract. And you can't pre-order because you don't there's know. different. They're all they all have different dimensions. I yeah. see. But, but we did, 
we did this year, knowing that we wanted to do the refresh campaign across the city, we've worked with Clear Channel to pre-purchase, I wanna say, Bob, like $800,000 of glass, so we can at least, knowing this situation, stock up so we can try to be more responsive and quicker. So we are attempting to get ahead of it. Because a month and a half is a long time to have a destroyed bus shelter. And, and, and again, it's just, I'm very sensitive to street conditions uh, at the moment. And so that's what's uh, on the top of my mind. And having a destroyed bus shelter for a month and a half, you know, Oh, we doesn't make us look very good. We, uh, to be clear, we remove it immediately. We we respond to it immediately. We make the situation safe. We get all of the equipment off-site, um, make sure there aren't any um, bolts or anything coming up. There'll be a tripping hazard. So we make the, sa the site safe immediately. And then we go. There are times when we turn it around very, very quickly. There, there have been some occasion, and so that's why that particular clause it was was modified okay okay um a related question because yeah. as you can see i'm stuck on street conditions mm -hmm. um the the related contract uh, or not related contract but the another contract you have with the city for the newspaper stands um I, you know the newspaper business isn't what mm -hmm. it used to be and so we have a bunch you know oftentimes empty stands with graffiti all over them that are destroyed. And I just am wondering if, he, if at the request of DPW or the supervisor, you would be willing to remove those stands that are just blight in, in neighborhoods. We have on a number of cases, we have removed about 240 this year. And would you be willing to remove more in the future if yes. upon the request of a supervisor or DPW? Yeah, I think it's a function of that. And so when I mentioned the publishers and I mentioned DPW and I mentioned us, where the publishers have publications that are in there, we don't control that, um, that part of it, that piece of it. And so um, it just has to work through the process. But yeah, we, we have... Um, worked with a number of your peers. We've taken out a whole host and um, we continue to be ready and we know that they're all going to come out in 2024. Okay, that's good to hear. I just, if, if we need sooner, you know, sooner action in certain areas where they're particularly damaged, it's good to hear that, yes. that you're willing to do yeah. that. Thank you. Sure. Um, okay, the, I wanted to ask Supervisor Safai who had to run and pick up his child um, and is on his way back, picking up his child and then coming back, whether he's on the line and has any questions. I, I am, thank you, Chair Ronan. I do have a couple points of clarification. Um, one is in terms of the turnaround for the maintenance and the actual definition of maintenance. How are you all defining the work that gets done uh, in terms of maintenance? Because one of the things that we see a lot is that there's trash or dumping mm -hmm. immediately adjacent to or leaning against the facility. So how is maintenance defined in terms of the work that you're doing? I understand graffiti and etching and replacing glass, but I also like to, to ask you about that because we get a lot of complaints about the conditions of the shelters. And I wanna make sure that we understand actually what you're responsible for and what kind of flexibility you have uh, particularly because you're increasing, seems like you're increasing the workforce 
and the number of people that are going to actually be doing the work, which I'm fully supportive of and excited to see this happening. But I really want to understand what we're getting in terms of the maintenance, because like Supervisor Ronan, I'm very concerned about the street conditions of these facilities in San Francisco and these shelters. Thank, thank you. And, and again, um, on that, so my definition of maintenance, and Bob can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's our contract. No, I, I, don't, want, I, don't, want your, I don't want your definition, Jonathan. I'm sorry, okay. I don't mean to cut you up. I want to know how it's defined in the contract. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, and, and Bob can feel free. That, I think the components you named are the maintenance, so that's etching on the glass, graffiti, dirt, and cleanliness of, of the shelters themselves. So those are maintenance. That's what we're increasing three days a week. It, it's very important to the agency that we create a good experience all the way when you start at the shelter to get on the bus. I think the capital improvement part is different and that's construction elements where we're adding power or adding our new customer information system signs or fixing them or as we've talked about with the 45 days, having to completely reconstruct a shelter. So there's the project level, but the maintenance is cleaning, removing of a graffiti, removing of things and, and power washing the shelters three days a week, um, dealing with safety issues as Bob talked about, if there's broken glass, removing that immediately, making the shelter at least functional until we can come back with that second layer, which is full capital improvements to where they should be. I would add on. So do you have it defined in your contract that says what specifically is allowed to sit for 45 days? Because, you know, that was the first thing, like, like the rest of the folks on the committee that jumped out at me going from 45 to 15 days. Yeah, that's, uh, um, yeah, I, I understand from Bob that, you know, you say you do it a lot faster, but I'd, I'd really like to understand what we're sure. giving you the flexibility yeah. to do. Yeah, and, if, and if it's full replacement... Does it say that in the contract? So, so there's a lot of there, there's a lot of terms and a lot of misinformation going on right now. The 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 increase from 50, 15 days to forty five is specific to destroyed shelters, and there are about eleven of those a year. So let's be real clear about what that is. Um, relatively insignificant to what the overall program is. So the overall program, we have a list of ten things that the cleaners are supposed to do every time they go. And as Jonathan said, it's, it's to inspect, it's to clean up a five-foot area around the shelter, it's to go and um, it, it's to squeegee off you know, all of the glass components, the map glass, the different things like that. It's to check the decals, it's to check the seats to make sure they're safe, it's to check the, the glass on the back. And we can get stickers, most of those things, power wash, we can do those on a regular course of business. Now there are things that an individual person isn't able to do, like they can't replace a destroyed glass panel or a back panel or something like that. They're probably gonna need help to put um, new seats on, that they're, um, things of that nature. If, if glass has been acid etched with it, which is a huge problem, and Lisa can talk to it. The graffiti, we've got some pretty amazing chemicals in the team, really works through that, but acid etching is, is something that requires a complete replacement of the yeah, acid etching. Yeah, there's acid etching uh, that, that, that um, goes on. There's a lot of thing that goes on on the streets, but then we have maintenance slash repair crews that are coming back to do the, the larger projects. 
and we have that scheduled out. And I, I would like to take a little bit of time just in terms of where we are since the SFMTA board meeting. They said we want this independent auditor to come in. We have hired that auditor. That auditor has, has completed 900 of the 1,200 inspections already. Uh, we developed an app, so it stacked, ranked them in order. We're going to go to the full board relative to the equity equation on it. As Jonathan mentioned, we've purchased a million dollars, made orders for the roofs, for the glass, for the ad panels, for all those things. They're set to arrive in December. Um, we have a subcontractor, we're gonna give a timeline. So this refresh program in terms of putting on all the new roofs, on the new ad panels, all the new, that should be finished by the end of the first quarter. So we, we, we did that and then, um, when the auditor went out they, with this app, it allowed us to, do, to write work orders for everything in the plant. And so all of those work orders are getting assigned to our maintenance people, and we will track that and share it with Lisa on a monthly basis. So we are in flight. Um, our intention is to make this better. We are partnered, invested in making this better. This has been a, a, a really lopsided contract in favor of the city. Um, and I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but you know, over the course of the last 15 years, um, we've lost $100 million, $115 million on this contract. Um, and some of the revenues- Well, that, that was, Bob, that was, gonna be, that, that was gonna be my next question to you. So that was a good segue. So if you lost 100 plus million dollars because of the minimum guaranteed payment, what is in what is in it for clear? You know what what is in it for your company? I I mean even under these current terms, what is it that you're? What's the benefit to your company? The benefit to the company is preservation of the contract, so we don't go down a path that that hurts the city, that hurts the SFMTA, that discontinues services. We want to keep our people employed. We want to be partners. We want to help the city out of the problems that it's in. This is our community. We're, we're part of that. And, and as Jonathan said, it, it, the ad revenues, they fund the MAG payments, but they fund the cash to do the maintenance. They fund the capital equipment that do all these things. And, and as Jonathan said, we anticipate generating about $78 million in revenue over the course of the next five years. We anticipate spending nine, uh, about $100 million. We're going to lose another $20 million on this. So for every dollar in ad revenue that we take in, we're going to give the city $0.117. Cents. And, and I would also go... Well, that, well, that's what, again, that's what I'm asking. So, have, like, what, do you, what are you guys doing? This? I mean, I'm not mad, but if you guys are losing another $30 million, then... So we do, Great. It's not. I guess we need more. We, we need more companies to do business with the city like you that are. We're trying to in make it for your. Thank you. We're trying to make lemonades out of lemons. It's, it's crazy. All right. Hey, that, that that's the extent. Of, I do want to say. I do want to say just for the record, one of the things I, I I do notice in this contract is the commitment to a local workforce, the commitment to ensuring that. There's an expanded workforce to do this good work, and I think that that is a that is a phenomenal commitment. This is a a true public-private partnership. So I would I would like you to just end with speaking about 
where the majority of your workforce lives and comes from, because I would imagine based on the description that you have a good number that come from San Francisco and that lived in our local communities and that it's a pretty diverse workforce. It's a pretty diverse workforce. Um, you know, probably 60% of the people live in the city of San Francisco. Um, the people that do the work are members of the Teamsters 853. We pay a good wage. We pay pension. We pay health care. We're proud of what we do. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Let's open this up for public comments, uh, and then we'll hear from Supervisor Chen. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item or joining us in person should line up now to speak. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 and enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925 then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to uh, enter the speaker line. And for those ready in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that'll be your signal to begin your comments. Uh, go ahead and start and I'll start your time. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Uh, Mark Gleason. I'm here speaking on behalf of the Executive Board of 665, Teamsters 665, and our sister local 853, which directly represents the workers at Clear Channel, some who have been there for over 20 years. Um, as a very quick aside, the workers at uh, 853 within recent months, in anticipation of this contract and this amendment being uh, adhered to soon enough, uh, have approved their contract, their labor contract. We have labor peace for many years to come. Uh, we're here today asking for the amendment to also be approved today. Um, this is a good uh, uh, amendment. It expands the workforce. It takes care of a lot of the questions that San Franciscans have about the uh, conditions of the, uh, the bus shelters. And I'm going to make my comments now going forward, specifically from the trade union movement. Within recent hours, we've just been informed, and I'm going to, you know, we're speaking just for the unions here. One of the workers this morning was assaulted while trying to perform their work in cleaning these bus shelters. This is not the first time, and indeed, because of behavior, street behavior in San Francisco, both public sector, as we know, first responders, paramedics, and others, women and men who are going to work, are going to work in conditions that are reflective of these shelters that are being repaired. I'd like that to be considered today. Uh, this is a good amendment, and perhaps if the agency and the budget analysts have some kind of miscommunication, then that can be addressed. But we are asking that today that this amendment be approved so that our workers can continue to do their work, expand the workforce, and serve the citizens of San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Leeson, for your comments. Seeing no further in-person speakers here in the chamber, Mr. Lamb, uh, unmute our caller, please. Good afternoon. Can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Please begin. Okay. okay. Hey, how's it going? Uh, uh, my name is Romero Gonzalez, and uh, I've been with uh, the local Teamsters 853 and employed with Clear Channel Outdoor since uh, 2019. And uh, our work uh, includes cleaning and maintaining the bus shelters, and it's a very important part in rebuilding the trust of the public 
because they're the ones that use the public transportation. So the streets in San Francisco are just getting tougher to work. And it's got even tougher every day. My my teamsters, my teammates and myself have uh, had to deal with these issues. Issues like homelessness, furniture, drugs, feces, syringes, graffiti, broken uh, glass, acid, etch panels, broken ads, boxes. And just for them to access, you know, the power so they break into them. And the SFMTA staff and Clear Channel and the Teamsters recognize that the contract needs to be reworked to address these tough issues and working conditions. This amendment will make things much better for the people of San Francisco and the city itself. We appreciate your consideration and support of the amendment before you. Thank you. Thank you much, Romero Good, uh, Gonzalez, for your comments. Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Please begin. Great. David Pilpel again. Um, so on this item, uh, contrast to the previous one, I support this uh, strongly. I believe these were good uh, terms negotiated on behalf of the city and actually benefit uh, both parties. Um, on the city side, thanks to Jonathan Ruers, Lisa Ising, uh, Robin Reitzis, and others, uh, MTA, and uh, probably elsewhere. Um, I had a great conversation with Lisa Ising last week regarding uh, transit shelters, maintenance, and other matters. Um, also, there was a cleanup item at the MTA board on November 1st regarding the agreement, some um, remaining language that needed to be uh, struck. It was hard to tell from all the uh, packet material if that was uh, considered by the uh, BLA in their report on the transfer of um, the shelters to the city at the end of the agreement in whatever condition. Anyway, um, if uh, this committee sees fit to continue uh, the matter for additional time, then so be it. Uh, if you see fit to forward it to the full board today, uh, even better. And uh, once again, I, I support my, my old friend, uh, Mark Gleason, and am and in, in support of this proposed resolution. Thanks for listening. Mr. Lamb, do you have any more speakers in the queue? Uh, Madam Chair, to complete your telephonic queue. Public comment is now closed. Supervisor Chan. Thank Madam you. Chair. Oh. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, thank you, Chair Ronan. I can speak after you, Supervisor Safai, if you actually have questions. I do. I do. I, I, I do want to clarify one thing. Um, it, it, it is my understanding, unless I'm wrong, that this contract potentially expires on December the 6th. Is that right from MTA? Because I think that, I guess the only thing I would say as a kind of a friendly response to Supervisor Chen is if this contract is going to expire and it needs to be sent then from the board to the mayor for ultimate signature. And you. since it's a quick, a quick turnaround, maybe we could send it out of committee without recommendation and pending the information on the maintenance record. Yes, I think we all got the same message. Um, so I hear you. I, I, <laughs> um, I, I think that actually it is critical to the integrity of, of both this contract, but really like owe it to our constituents for the conditions of our streets to really have an honest um, 
data-driven conversation about what really requires to keep to upkeep our streets and our bus shelters. And then so I think that it is to actually our benefits to turn over the records to budget and legislative analysts. And if it's really one business day, I think the question is, Mr. Ruhr, why wasn't that it was turned over? If it's so easy to just turn over a while ago, while you, we, th we, have, we may have a short turnaround, we should just provide the records. Like, could, could we move forward? Like, when we move forward, moving forward, not just with this contract, but all other contracts and all other conversation, please turn records to BLA so that we can actually, like, save us all time. Because if you're short on time, you know, as this contract expiring on December 6th, do the work up front so we don't have to have to do this like you know conversation of like yes we'll get the records back to you later so in good faith always just turn it over that's just my 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 piece and this is not on clear channel right it's on sfmta to turn over the record even if you're the so-called neutral party so please turn over that record so then we actually have an honest analysis about what is required and what is the gap but also to have an independent agency that to verify whether this is a terms and conditions is is really in the worth of 50 million dollars upward for this extension and I think that's critical. I, I think that no one is going to ask any companies. I, I would say the city is not in the in the place where I'm sure that Supervisor Safai, who is a good negotiator, like to continue to see a company giving us giving back a hundred million dollars, <laughs> you know, uh, for over 15 year period of time. But that to, to but but in all seriousness, I think that the city is in the position of, hey, if this is the service that you provide, we intend to make sure that this is the money that is being spent. And, and we, that, I think, is all I'm asking, is that for the services provided by Clear Channel through SFMTA, that we are saying that reduction of this payment, so to speak, you know, that we could actually, it, it is really worth that service. Maybe more, maybe less, but let's just have a happy LA to do that analysis. So with that, I would make the motion today to move this legislation forward without recommendation. And please, uh, we're coming back because next week it's Thanksgiving, so the board is not meeting on Tuesday. But the week after, we'd love to actually make sure that we have either updated BLA report on this, or at least mm -hmm. some information from, from SFMTA to make sure that at the full board that our colleagues have that information to make their own decision on this contract extension. Thank you. Thank you. Can we have a roll call vote on that motion? On that motion by Member Chan that this resolution be forwarded without a recommendation. Uh, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you so much uh, to everyone who came out. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number three? Yes, item number three is a resolution authorizing and approving a First Amendment to the lease to the renewal of an office lease for the existing Transportation Management Center with Hudson 1455 Market LLC as landlord for the Municipal Transportation Agency had 1455 Market Street, had a yearly initial base rent of approximately 1.3 million with annual adjustments, a 3% for a term of 10 years to commence September 20th, 2023, for a total term of September 20th, 2023 through September 19th, 2033, and to authorize the director or property of property to enter into 
any extensions, amendments, or modifications to the lease that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city <coughs> and are necessary to effectuate the purposes of this lease or this resolution. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand when the system indicates you have been unmuted. That is your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you so much. And we have Ms. Gorman here from the Department of Real Estate. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you, I'm Chair Ronan, Supervisor Chan. Um, on behalf of the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency, we're asking for a positive recommendation for the lease renewal via First Amendment of 10 years for approximately 39,000 square feet of office, locker room, and bike space at 1455 Market Street used for MTA's Transit Management Center, which is a 24-7 operation. Back in June 2011, the board approved the original lease to consolidate MTA's real-time command and control functions from several locations into one with up-to-date systems and create both a primary and a secondary uh, or backup transit center. Um, after a site assessment study, 1455 market was ranked as the best and the um, improvements were created and the uh, transit center was created. The lease term was 10 years with two further options to extend by 10 years each. This will be the first of the 10-year extension options to be exercised commencing in September 2023. On all of the same terms and conditions as set forth in the original lease except base rent. Base rent as set forth in the original lease commences at a 5% increase over the then current base rent amount or in this case approximately $43 per square foot which is still below market rate. Annual rent adjustments thereafter continue at 3% annually for the term as per the original lease. Um, I'm here to answer any questions you have about the agreement. Um, we have representatives from MTA if you have any use uh, questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we have a report from the BLA. Thank you. Uh, item three is a resolution approving an amendment to the city's lease um, with F Hudson 1455 Market LLC uh, for the city to lease about 38,000 square feet um, of space at that site. Uh, it's, a, it's the second 10-year um, extension uh, that was part of the original lease approved by the board in 2011. And this site houses um, a lot of the command and control functions for MTA. An appraisal was not required um, under the administrative code chapter 23 requirements um, because the cost is less than $45 a square foot, um, which I'll note, you know, we did look at the real estate comps that were provided by the real estate division. And I'll also note that this is below the Fox Plaza lease that was just at this committee. Um, so we, we believe this item, this, this lease is below market. Um, you can see the cost of the lease on page eight of our report, uh, which is $26.8 million over the 10-year extension, and we recommend approval. Thank you so much. Um, any questions, colleagues? Supervisor Safai? Yeah, I just want to say I think this is one of the best leases that we've had come in front of us in a long time. It's, it's over $23 less than Fox Plaza, so I am a 1,000% in support of this renewal. 
I couldn't agree more. Thanks for that. We can now open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press pound twice. You will need to press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you should begin your comments then. Um, seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, Mr. Lamb, uh, kindly unmute our caller. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. Great. David Philpel. Last time today, I'm sure there's much happiness in the room. Um, so on this item, the MTA has considerable space on the third, sixth, seventh, and eighth floors, eighth floor at uh, one South Van S, something like half the uh, building space. Uh, why not have the TMC on the eighth floor as was originally uh, thought of? Uh, I believe that less uh, building space will be needed by MTA with work from home and uh, increased use of hoteling uh, in the future. That could save up to the 26.8 uh, million that's projected here over 10 years, less uh, the amount to uh, move and relocate and tenant improvements, all of that. Um, but that 26.8 million is scarce operating budget funds. It's not capital money, it's operating budget funds. So what we're doing is leasing space across the street at considerable cost, even if it's less than uh, market rate in, in the neighborhood, instead of providing more service on Mission Street or uh, on the west side of the city or elsewhere. It's operating budget funds. Um, I believe we can reduce our leased space um, by not renewing this or transitioning to uh, uh, moving the, the function to one south. And I would note that the 2011 lease approval was controversial, was approved at the full board only on a seven to four vote. And I would encourage this committee, and if you report this out today, the full board, to consider this um, item carefully. I don't think this should be the slam dunk lease renewal that staff is proposing. Thanks for listening. Mr. Lamb, do you have any more callers? Madam Chair, that completes our queue. Public comment is now closed. I would like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan? Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. That motion passes unanimously. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number four? Yes, item number four is a resolution approving amendment number 47 to the Treasure Island Land and Structures Master Lease between the Tre Treasure Island Development Authority and the United States Navy to extend the term for one year to commence December 1st, 2022 for a total term of November 19th, 1998 through November 30th, 2023, and to authorize the Treasure Island Director to execute and enter into amendments to the lease that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city and are necessary to effectuate the purposes and intent of this resolution. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001. 
Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press bound twice. <coughs> Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, I will be recued to begin your comments. Member Chen. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And then uh, here today we have for presenter Bob Beck, um, that is the director from Treasure Island Development Authority. Is that correct? Good morning. Actually, Good morning. I'm uh, Peter Somerville with Titus Staff. Director Beck has been held up in another meeting, so I'm going to be taking his place today. Will he be joining us? Uh, so it will just be you representing? It'll just be me, yes. No problem. Thanks. Good to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Uh, good afternoon, Supervisors. Peter Somerville with Titus Staff. In front of you today is an amendment to the U.S. Navy's master lease with the authority for land and structures on Treasure Island. Um, there are no material changes to the lease in the amendment save for the extension of the term by one year, uh, commencing December 1st, 2022 through November 30, 2023. Um, we request consideration of approval and forwarding to the full board, and I'm happy to answer any questions at this time. Thank you. Um, any questions, colleagues? Okay, and there's no BLA report, so we'll open this item up for public comment. Yes, Madam Chair, members of the public wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person. Should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. The meeting ID for today is 2499-557-9925. Uh, then press pound twice. You'll need to press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those who are in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And there's your signal to begin talking. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. Uh, Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Public comment is now closed. To make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion to forward this uh, resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation. Uh, Vice Chair Safai. Vice Chair Safai. Member Chan. Chan, I. Uh, Chair Ronan. Aye. Uh, Ronan, aye. Um, just checking Vice Chair Safai um, absent. Uh, we have two ayes with Vice Chair Safai absent. Motion. Oh. <laughs> Safai, aye. Uh, strike that. We have three ayes. Motion passes unanimously. Mr. Clerk, can you please read items five and six together? Yes, items five and six. Uh, our resolutions retroactively authorizing the Office of the District Attorney to accept and expend grants from the California Department of Insurance for the grant period of July 1st, 2022 through June 30th, 2023. Item 5 is in the amount of approximately 314000 for the Automobile Insurance Fraud Program, and Item 6 is in the amount of approximately $1 million for the Workers' Compensation Insurance Fraud Program. Members of the public are joining us remotely and wish to comment on these resolutions. Please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925 and press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you've raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your cue to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you. And we have Tina Nunez over here or online, I think, to bring it to present uh, on yes. this item. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Chairperson. Um, my name is Tina Noonsober. Good afternoon. Hi, we're having a hard time today. hearing you. 
Oh, okay. Let me see if I can. Um, can you hear me now? We can hear you better. Uh, maybe just speak loudly. <laughs> okay. I can do that. Oh, there we um, go. Now my name we can again. Hear my name is. Oh, okay. Now we can. Okay. Hear you. Thank you, Madam Chairperson. Um, my name is Tina Nunzober, and I am the managing attorney for the Economic Crimes Unit at the DA's office. Um, along with me is Lorna Garrido, who um, works for our office on the finance side of our grants. Um, the Economic Crimes Unit of our office primarily prosecutes insurance fraud. And annually, we apply for and we receive two Department of Insurance grants to prosecute insurance fraud. Part of our grant process is that we seek this resolution from our board. Um, the larger grant, which is the Workers' Compensation Fraud Grant, assists our office in funding salaries for two DA investigators and partial salaries for three attorneys um, to be able to prosecute, investigate and prosecute workers' compensation fraud. Many of these cases are quite complex and require intensive resources, and the grants are needed to help fund staff who handle these important cases. And just to let the board know um, and the committee know that our goals in these cases are multiple. Um, we're seeking accountability for these offenders. We want restitution to the victims. We want to protect injured workers for whom this system is built to assist. Um, we want to deter future fraud and we want to level the playing field for all of our businesses in San Francisco. The auto insurance fraud grant funds one DA investigator and partially, partially funds three, three DA attorneys salaries. Our goals for that grant are also deterrence, accountability, consumer protection, restitution to the victims, as well as public safety. Um, insurance fraud, as we all know, is a huge problem that impacts all Californians, and fraud causes losses of billions of dollars annually. These Department of Insurance grants allow us to place experienced staff in these critical positions and to handle insurance fraud cases with a high level of expertise and experience. These grants also allow us to have much needed ongoing training because as uh, the, the board probably knows, the people who commit these types of crimes are always learning new ways to cheat the system. So we have to try and keep up with them. Um, we appreciate the board's time and your consideration in um, this resolution for us so that we can accept this money and spend it. And I'm happy to take any questions. If you have any questions on the finance side, um, Ms. Garrido can answer those because I went to law school because I can't do math. So thank you all very much for your time. Thank you. Any questions, colleagues? Mm -hmm. Seeing none, we can open this item up for public comment. Uh, yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, Master Lamb. Um, Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Public comment is now closed. Um, I'd make a motion to send items five and six to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion, to forward both items five and six to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member, uh, sorry, Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. 
Those pa motions pass unanimously. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number seven? Yes, item number seven is uh, a resolution retroactively authorizing the Department of Public Health to accept and expend a grant in the amount of six million from the California Board of State and Community Corrections for participation in a program entitled Proposition 47, Supporting Treatment and Reducing Recidivism, Cohort 3, for the period of September 1st, 2022 through June 1st, 2026. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001. The, uh, enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press pound twice. Once, correct, once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that will be your signal to begin your comments, Madam Chair. Oh, I'm so sorry. Angelica Almeida is back with us uh, from maternity leave after giving birth to an adorable, adorable daughter. <laughs> Thank you. I agree, of course. <laughs> uh, well, please begin. Thank you so much. And good afternoon, supervisors. Dr. Angelica Almeida with the Department of Public Health, Behavioral Health Services. And I'm here in an expanded role since I was last in front of the board as the director of the Adult and Older Adult System of Care. Um, and I am here to respectfully request to retroactively authorize DPH to accept and expend a grant from the Board of State and Community Corrections. It's a $6 million grant of $5.5 million goes to community-based organizations. This grant again is through the Board of State and Community Corrections through Prop 47, which is designed to support individuals who have mental health needs, substance use disorder treatment needs, and diversion programs, and specific, specifically for individuals who have had contact with the criminal justice system. As a note, we were awarded this grant on July 26, and we worked uh, to develop the legislative packet with the controller's office, which was then forwarded to the mayor's office on September 30th. And I'm excited to be here uh, and be back uh, to be able to tell you about the program. This grant, we have named uh, the Supporting Treatment uh, and Reducing Recidivism Grant. Again, it's a $6 million grant. $3.1 million um, is in matching funds. Uh, it's no new positions, uh, but matching funds for positions that are assessing individuals and referring into this treatment program. This grant supports residential treatment program beds, low threshold case management, and wraparound support services. Again, it's unique because it offers us dedicated capacity for individuals who have contact with the criminal justice system. It's a program that focuses on jail diversion, recovery, and community reentry, with a goal of reducing recidivism and improving the health and housing status of participants. We are fortunate enough that we have been recipients of all three rounds of this funding through the Board of State and Community Corrections, the first beginning July of 2017 through June 2021, second round September 2019, um, and which will end in February 2023, and now this new grant. Next slide, please. So this grant will continue to fund community-based organizations that we've worked with since 2017 to provide case management and treatment services. We've contracted with Salvation Army Harbor Light Center uh, to provide 10 withdrawal management treatment beds for individuals to stay up to two weeks and 18 residential SUD treatment beds um, for individuals to stay for six to nine months. 
What's unique, of course, about partnering with Salvation Army, and this was a new contract for us in 2017, was really to diversify our substance use disorder treatment portfolio. Um, it is also, of course, a faith-based organization and focused on a 12-step model. These are things that we heard very clearly from our community justice, uh, criminal justice partners and our community providers um, as a missing need. And so this was an opportunity for us to diversify that portfolio. In addition, we've worked with Felton Institute, um, and this will provide 100 low-threshold case management slots for individuals throughout the course of the grant to serve at least 150 individuals. Felton Institute throughout this program has really worked to have a diverse workforce that reflects the communities that we're serving, and particularly with individuals with lived experience in both the behavioral health and criminal justice systems. Um, a much smaller portion of the grant goes to additional funds through the Public Health Foundation, which offers engagement items, including opportunities to buy work clothes or to pay um, for DUI classes, as example, really to meet the needs of the population and to make it as low barrier as possible so that individuals are able to successfully reenter the community. Salvation Army, of course, also has a strong history of working with individuals to transition into permanent housing um, and also to re-enter the workforce. And so it's been a great partner in that. And we are happy to support that with these flexible funds. This grant also funds one staff member through the Department of Public Health, which will work to supervise the project, triage and assess individuals for appropriateness into the program and collect and analyze data. Next slide, please. Uh, this slide provides a visual um, of our referral pathway and services provided, which we've already spoken about. Uh, just to add some additional context, uh, throughout the course of these grants since 2017, the Adult Probation Department has been a very close partner with the Department of Public Health to provide these services. Uh, we also intend to work very closely with our law enforcement partners uh, to ensure that this is an opportunity to refer individuals into treatment. One thing to highlight regarding the withdrawal management beds is these are beds where we uh, are able to do intakes until 10 p.m. at night. Uh, so it provides us a lot of opportunity to support individuals who either have contact with law enforcement during that time period or are exiting the jail. We also work with adult probation department to triage individuals who are um, going to the community assessment and services center, which is a one-stop shop um, that I, I know you are all very familiar with through the adult probation department. Um, we, of course, accept people who are walking in, and we also utilize and leverage resources through the Department of Public Health, um, including making sure that our outreach teams make referrals to this program, hospitals and our crisis services, including our street crisis response team that leverages these beds. Next slide, please. Just some things to note um, regarding changes in this cohort from the two previous cohorts. Um, there, this second round of funding hit right before COVID. Um, so COVID drastically impacted our program design and really required us to reorient our work. Um, that included the Community Assessment and Services Center, which we really, for our second round of the grant, focused on having everyone funnel through that center. Um, because of COVID, that center had been closed for a year during COVID. And so we've really worked to decentralize the intake process, as you just saw, and making sure that we are being as flexible and nimble as possible to reach as many individuals to enter these treatment beds and treatment services. 
Of note, um, there's also a reduction in the grant-funded beds at Salvation Army from 40 to 18. Um, this is because there was a significant overlap of two-plus years between our first and second round of funding for the grants. We were able to leverage dollars from both grants at the same time. Um, unfortunately, that is not the case with this round of the grant, and so we are only able to fund 18 beds uh, for the residential treatment beds. That being said, we are using cost savings that are already in the existing operating budget uh, to be able to continue these beds through this fiscal year. So we are not having a loss of treatment beds um, and then are looking at other funding opportunities to continue the beds at Salvation Army, including leveraging drug Medi-Cal dollars. Next slide, please. And finally, just to speak to some improvements um, that we made in this round of the grant. Um, as, you, as you know, um, there is a very uh, important CBO staffing and wage analysis that is being done by the controller's office. Um, and we look forward to seeing how that can, uh, the recommendations from that report to impact this work. As particularly in cohort one of the grant, we had a hard time getting things up and running uh, because of difficulties in uh, both hiring and retaining staff. Um, this is also noted in the BLA report, uh, but uh, there has been some challenges in the, the beds being filled. As I noted, this was highly impacted by COVID. Unfortunately, Salvation Army, because it has a dormitory-style housing, was severely impacted by several significant outbreaks during the course, and unfortunately, tragic outbreaks during the course um, of this grant. Uh, and so there were uh, several months where we weren't able to bring new participants into the program. That being said, while it's been a slower recovery, um, I'm happy to the report in the last four months, we've had a 50% average occupancy rate for withdrawal management beds and 75% for our residential treatment beds, and that has been increasing steadily over time. What I am happy to report is that we've had a lot of success with this program. In the first cohort of the program, we had statistically significant reductions in arrests. And so thus far in our second round of the grant, none of our program participants have um, been arrested or, in, in, or gone to jail in San Francisco. Um, so we are excited to, to report that and look forward to continued success for this program. Um, that is all I have uh, in terms of the presentation. Of course, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Uh, we'll first hear from the budget and legislative analyst and then uh, have questions. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Item seven is a resolution approving an acceptance of a, of a $6 million grant from the California State Board, um, Board, excuse me, California Board of State and Community Corrections. Uh, it's a Prop 47 grant. It's a three-year grant for $6 million. Um, and it's the third uh, round of funding that the city's received um, from the state for this program, which will continue to fund um, detox and residential treatment beds and case management, as was uh, just discussed by the department. Uh, we show the program design um, on page 14 of our report, and you can see the providers um, and the different services that they're offering. Um, and then on page 15 and 16, we show the grant budget, so the incoming grant is $6 million. Um, that will be matched um, by the cost of uh, city, existing city positions, so no new positions. Um, that cost about $3 million over the three-year period of the grant, um, and those will be funded by the general fund. We did note a couple policy considerations on the report that I think of to some, ex 
some of them have been addressed by the department already, but I'll just say them again now, which is number one, you know, the, the pro even before COVID, the, the program, um, I think, did not meet its, in, its intended occupancy targets for these beds. There were delays in contracting with providers and then hiring out the providers and then COVID hit. So I think that they've struggled, uh, according to their own reports, to meet their own occupancy, occupancy targets. Um, that has since improved, and we, we've seen that improvement in the data that was shared by the department. Um, and in the first eight months of this year, this calendar year, those occupancy targets were, were 50 and 75 percent, as was just discussed. Um, the, we did also note that the, the number of beds funded by the grant on the residential side is going down from 40 to 18 funded by this grant. That's less than the 28 people on average uh, per month that are using those beds. At the time of our report, the department said that the Salvation Army was going to do private fundraising for those beds, but it sounds like they found general fund money to actually cover the cost of the remaining beds. Um, and the final issue is that the the underlying agreements, uh, it's not, we're not, appear to be sole sourced. We're not sure about the details of that procure, those procurements and whether they needed to comply with Chapter 21G, which as I think you all know, uh, is there generally requires competitive solicitations for grant awards. Um, so it's for all these reasons that we're recommending a report back by May 2023 on the occupancy of the, of, of the beds in the program and then the, the kind of funding uh, for the beds that will no longer be funded. Um, and that's, it gives the department six months to kind of address these outstanding questions and the board an opportunity to address any remaining issues as part of the budget process next year. Thank you. Thank you. Colleagues, questions? Supervisor Safai? Yeah, I, uh, you went really fast. That's okay. There's a lot of information to cover. But what I, and I appreciate it, um, what I want to understand on, the, on our report, and I know you said you had previous funding that you were able to group together, or I don't remember the exact phrase you used, but back in 2017 through 2021, it says use of matching funds along with the grant, there was about 18 DPH full-time equivalent employees, five probation department full-time equivalents and CASC rent. In 2019 through 2023, and I guess that money is, there's some overlap of funding. You're paying for CASC rent, you're paying for five probation department full-time equivalents and then 3.4 full-time equivalents and then another 12.9. So can you explain to me, because it's a little bit confusing how the sustainability of this program will maintain itself if there's a decrease in funding, if maybe I'm reading that wrong and then a little bit about how the money is broken out. It seems, I just want to say for the record, I'm very, a big fan of the Salvation Army Harbor Lights program. I'm very familiar with it. I think they have a, a lot of success there. They do a lot of work with recovery and abstinence-based programming, which I think is phenomenal, and I'm glad to see more DPH funding going in there. But if you can just give us a little bit more detail about that, that would be helpful. 
Absolutely. Um, so our first round of the grant was from July 2017 to June 2021. The second round of the grant was from September 2019 <coughs> and will be ending February 15th, 2023. Um, so these grants overlapped by two years, which is why we were able to leverage the $6 million we were awarded in each grant at the same time. There's two separate grants for $6 million. They were both Prop 47 grants, both through the Board of State and Community Corrections. The cohorts overlapped um, from the Board of State and Community Corrections. But did we get two separate grants for we $6 did, million? Yes. Okay, Okay, I just want to yes. make sure I understand that. Got it. And so the cohorts overlap. Yes. Seems as though a good chunk of the money is going for the residential detox beds and the SUD. And then tell me about how we make up for the lost beds. So in terms... Or, or, or are there lost beds? Yes, and I appreciate that. Um, so in terms of uh, this, of course, is a priority for the department and is a requirement from the Board of State and Community Corrections that most of the funding goes to community-based organizations. Right. Um, for us, we have roughly 3.7 going to Salvation Army, 1.7 to Felton, and this is over the course of the grant period, um, and 13,000 for Public Health Foundation. And again, the only money that's going to a city department is to uh, the Department of public health for operating costs uh, and also for the one position to do assessments and triage to support getting people into those treatment beds. In terms of the, please, Sorry. please go ahead. So the 3.7 and the 1.7, is that out of one of the $6 million grants? For this current round, for, this for current one, one $6 million. For, from the previous $6 million, how did that break out? Similar? Oh, similar um, it, it was very similar. I would, of course, be happy to follow up with specific details. I don't have those, those but numbers similar. with me, I mean, it's but very a, similar, yes. A good yes. chunk of it goes to Salvation Most Army. Most of it has been for Salvation Army and treatment 1, services. 1.7 is to, okay, got it, and then Felton, and then some money for the foundation and, and DPH staff. Okay, got it. Um, so are we losing any beds? Are we losing any funding for any beds? Because it says here 10 and 40, now it's 10 and 18. So we have 10 and 18 that are going to be funded by the grant. This grant. By this grant. Uh, the, the remaining 22 beds uh -huh. um, are being funded in this. So the second round of the grant um, ends February 15th of 2023. So we'll have 40 beds funded by a Prop 47 grant until February 15th, 2023. And then it'll change from the 10 beds to the 18 beds that are funded by this, this cohort of the grant. So the remaining 22 beds with Salvation Army will be funded by cost savings and general fund for the remainder of this fiscal year. And then we are working with Salvation Army, which has been a priority for them as well, uh, to look at other funding options, including drawing down drug medical dollars. Got it. Good. I'm glad to know because this is one of the questions we had for Dr. Cunnins when we were asking, are, is DPH funding any pure abstinence-based programming, and I know Salvation Army is one, so that's, that's good to know. And I think that's a really important program. Um, my second thing is, if you can go back to the slide on the referrals, because again, that was, we did that really quickly, but I know that when we did our therapeutic community program, our TRP, with a positive directions equals change mm -hmm. and adult probation, majority of the referrals were coming straight from adult probation, people on probation, reduced recidivism. Can you talk a little bit more, just a little bit more detail about how the referrals are made? It, because it seems to me that they're not just coming from adult probation. 
Uh, that is correct. They are not just coming from adult probation. Our second round of the grant referrals were really centralized through the Community Assessment and Services Center for people exiting the jail or coming to the Got center through, for services. Through the CAS. Through the and, CAS, and, yes. and, and adult probation works very closely with CAS. Yes, they operate the CAS, and they right. have been a major partner in this work. Okay, I just... Okay, so the majority of the referrals are coming through CAS. So that was for our second round of the grant. Um, they were focused in the CASC. We've since decentralized that um, in part because of the impact of COVID, and we want to make sure that we are leveraging the beds as much as possible. And so the adult probation department and the CAS continues to be a major partner in referrals into this program, including probation officers being able to make direct referrals. We also work very closely with the jail for individuals who are exiting the jail to be able to make referrals to this program, as well as other community partners, our street-based teams um, for individuals they're seeing on the street who have had contact with the criminal justice system, hospitals, and our street crisis response team. But I, I would just say, I think it's important if we're really trying to reduce recidivism that we have it. I, I'm not trying to be overly centralized, but I think that it's important that we're working through the existing channels that have shown success rather than just referring someone directly into a program without the proper support system along the way. So I, I mean, I just, again, I know a little bit of CASC is great, adult probation, coming from the jails, but if we're just taking someone off the street and putting them in there, we might not have the same level of success. So hopefully that's a very small portion of the referrals versus because there's not that many beds. I mean, like, if we're talking about the universe of need, it's a small number. We should ensure that we're making good referrals for success. Am I? I'm sorry. No, no, I just okay. disagree with you. I'm just, I'm happy that we're decentralizing. No, 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 listen, I, I, I am, I'm happy to have as much referral as possible. But again, I think that just because I work specifically with ADP, adult probation, that if we're just referring we might not set people up for the type of success that we I, need. I, under, I, I definitely understand your point and I definitely appreciate because it's not true of all the service providers that, that this program does have proven success. And I, you know, I wanna be evaluating all the other right. residential treatment to, to see what's happening there. Um, but I, I, what bothers me in our system of care, which I think is improved by the fact that you're decentralizing uh, referral into these programs, is that it, 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 there's no place for people to go when the street outreach team repeatedly works, you know, works with the same person over and over again. And this provides an opportunity for them to gain entry into a very successful program. And so that, no, that sure. wasn't happening before, and therefore we, we weren't filling the beds, et cetera. So, no, 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 for sure. I, I would just say, again, I think the, the purpose of this grant is purely it's about reducing recidivism. It's, pro, it's formerly incarcerated. And I'm sure that that's the high level of the number of people that are on the street. So anyway, I mean, we can talk about this all day. I just... Well, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to double check that. Um, makes me happy, want to hear more about. I, I would like to say for the record, it would, having the Department of Public Health have a stronger relationship with the Salvation Army given the fact that they're going through a major expansion and model of doing and expanding residential beds. They have a lot of real estate. Some of it's in your district, some of it's south of market. They've come and they've talked and we've been working closely with them about 
expanding their footprint and their ability to deliver. So I think that let's analyze the success of this program and then let's have further conversations about strengthening and expanding those opportunities. And I'll just add, I, and I appreciate both perspectives and I, I think both are incredibly valid. Um, I think one of the things I appreciate about this program is the ability to be flexible and to meet the needs of the population. Um, and also wherever we can prevent somebody having contact with, we don't want the jail to be an entry point into services. So wherever we can prevent right. somebody from going to jail who may have had a history of contact and we know are at greater risk, it's a great opportunity to be able to do so. Um, so it's great to have that flexibility. Um, the other piece um, that I neglected to say, but we'll share it, is that all of these cohorts have required us to work with an external evaluator to assess um, the success of the program, um, including things like the metrics that I mentioned of having statistically significant reductions in arrest for the population. So that's something that we agree is really important for us to evaluate um, and something that we are happy to have included as part of the grant. Great. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Um, the, the other, so uh, I, I, given the history of underutilization of these beds and just drawing from what you explained prior to COVID, the primary reasoning was it was hard to hire the workforce necessary to run the beds. Post-COVID, it was difficult because all entry went through the cask, which was closed down. Uh, both situations are resolved. So going forward, um, it would be, I, I, I appreciated the budget and legislative analyst's recommendation to get reports on bed utilization at the program because hopefully we've, we've, cracked, we've cracked the code here, <laughs> we've got the workforce, we've got you know, multiple entry points, and we'd like to see all 40 beds maintained and utilized. And so, um, I, you know, I'm wondering if you were uh, amenable to the re recommendation, the second recommendation of the budget and legislative analyst uh, to provide a report on the occupancy uh, and funding status of the 22 treatment beds um, no later than May 2023. We're always happy to come back and provide an update. And, and I'll just say again, we have seen a positive trend already in this fiscal year of the referrals um, and individuals going into the treatment beds increasing. And in this calendar year, the referrals were double already what we saw last calendar year. So we've seen a lot of significant improvement over time. That's great. And so, um, you know, we want all 40 of those beds to be maintained. Agreed. That should be a priority <laughs> for this, uh, you know, coming budget year. Message the mayor and the budget director who is not here today. So I hope, I hope uh, she gets that message. And um, if there is no other questions or comments, we can open this item up for public comment. Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557925, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and as your signal to begin your comments. Uh, seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. Um, and Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Public comment is now closed. 
I'd like to make a motion to amend the item to adopt the second recommendation of the budget legislative analyst and then us make a motion to send that amended item forward to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion by Chair Ronan to uh, amend the resolution to accept the BLA recommendation um, regarding reporting by the public, uh, sorry, uh, the reporting by the Department of Public Health and to forward that resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation as amended. Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Those motions pass unanimously. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Mr. Clerk, can you please read items eight and nine together? Yes, items eight and nine are hearings regarding the impacts to commercial real estate in the city. Item eight is a hearing to review the economic impact, real estate valuations, and potential tax revenue loss and city budget consequence of vacant office space uh, buildings and reduce, uh, reduced daytime population in the economic core, including the financial district Soma and Embarcadero. And item nine is a hearing on the pandemic's impact on the future of commercial real estate in San Francisco and the effects on the local economy and tax revenue. Uh, members of the public are joining us remotely and wish to comment on these hearings. Please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, and just want to note that we are joined by Supervisor Stephanie, and I wanted to give Supervisor Stephanie and Safai, I don't know which order, if Supervisor Safai can start uh, a chance to make opening comments. Thank you. Yes, we're going to both do this together. I'm, I'll hand it over to Supervisor Stephanie right after this. Uh, thank you, colleagues and attendees, if there are any left. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the purpose of this hearing is today is, is extremely important. Um, it's to examine the impacts of office vacancies and our reduced uh, daytime population in the downtown uh, core and how that will impact our city budget. Supervisor Stephanie and I have been working together and convening a downtown working group along in collaboration with Mayor Breed's office to discuss the challenges that our once vibrant downtown core faces in this post-pandemic climate. We've held, um, <clears throat> over the course of the past year or so, I've held two hearings regarding the subject, both in 2021 and earlier this year, to examine the state of our commercial vacancy numbers, the number of employees that are actually going back to work full-time or part-time in person, and how our tourism industry is recovering, and a lot more. And I think uh, we have, we're joined by Ted Egan today, who will go into some of those details. In the previous hearings, we had optimism that once COVID waned, in-person work could begin to return to a normal uh, type of volume, and our tourism, to that matter. Uh, today, it's clear to me and to many of us that full-time in-person work that our economic core is counting on uh, will not be returning to the same level that we've had in the past without incentives or significant policy changes that we can create here at the board. That, and we will be discussing those in the coming months. While we're eager to hear solutions, it's important to have a complete picture 
of the office vacancy cliff that our city is facing. And I just, I wanna be clear, we are facing a significant iceberg coming toward us here in the city and county of San Francisco. Our gross receipts tax, our property transfer tax, our business tax, our tourism, our hotel, our sales tax, all of those things rely on a vibrant economic downtown core that's related to office occupancy, but also to tourism. So in our hearing today, uh, we'll hear from, I think, uh, Ben Rosenfield, his office, controller's office, uh, our city economist, Ted Egan, Sessa recorder, Joaquin Torres, and our assessment appeals board, uh, Alistair Gibson. Before we get into it, I want to turn it over to Supervisor Stephanie um, to say a few words before we start with our controller. Thank you, Vice Chair Safai. Uh, I actually think we might have hit that iceberg, not to be, not to start on a negative note, yeah, but I, I think the situation is dire, and I started getting uh, nervous uh, early on about our empty offices downtown um, after coming out of the pandemic and realizing nobody was really coming back to work. So in July, I issued a letter of inquiry to Assessor Torres, Controller Rosenfield, Director Sofis, and Chief Economist Ted Egan, who's here with us today asking them really to try and assess the likelihood and impact of reduced demand for commercial space in San Francisco, especially in our downtown, and what that, um, would, what that impact would be on our local tax revenue. San Francisco's downtown core, as we know, and the financial district have been absolutely devastated by the pandemic. I read a research brief from UC Berkeley called The Death of Downtown, and it looked at 62 downtowns um, similar in size to San Francisco, and we were dead last. We had a recovery quotient of 31% of our pre-pandemic ec economic activity, activity, whereas New York is at 78%, Columbus is at 112%, and Salt Lake City is at 155%. So, you know, and unfortunately, San Francisco on a lot of these determinations is dead last in um, many different um, methods of deciding whether or not we are on the road to recovery. Um, and I do believe the situation is dire for several different reasons. Prior to the pandemic, the area that we're talking about in downtown, so it was responsible for generating more than 45% of the city sales tax. And since then, the neighborhood has seen some of the largest declines in sales tax revenue with some zip codes experiencing more than a 50% drop between 2019 and 2021. We of course know that San Francisco has a heavy concentration of tech employers um, that of course is particularly hospitable to remote work and that has kept workers out of downtown offices. Notwithstanding this, since November 1st, we have seen close to 20,000 layoffs, bringing this year's total to um, close to 33,000. Of course, uh, I don't think anyone could have predicted um, what Elon Musk would have done to Twitter, um, and the fact that we have these large layoffs is not helping. As we'll hear today from our chief economist, and I think the assessor is going to be um, online, and the impact on local tax revenue is likely to be severe and is likely to be sustained over the next few years at least. I think it's absolutely imperative that today we, be, we begin to have the tough conversations around what this means for our city. We need to define the problem 
and we need to understand what levers we have, um, what levers we can pull to try to solve them. So I'm looking forward to um, hearing the presentations and then, of course, having um, future discussions on what we can do at later dates. So thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. I think we're going to go. Uh, are you on, be on behalf of the entire controller's office first, Mr. Egan? Okay. So, so I'll have uh, Mr. Egan come present first. Thank you. Good afternoon, Supervisors Ted Egan with the controller's office. I would first ask Brent if he has our slides ready to go. I have a paper backup if they're not ready. Uh, I'll just mention, uh, based on your comments, Supervisor Safai, that we will be providing an update of some of the information that we've asked for in later hearings. Um, we will also be responding to Supervisor Stephanie's question and sharing information for the first time on what some of these downturns in downtown offices mean for uh, the city's property tax revenue. It's something we've been aware of for a long time and have been working on for the past several months. So we're in a position to share some of those numbers today. Good. Thank you. Please proceed. Oh, there it is. Great. Can we go to the next slide, please? For, for, our, for, for us in the controller's office, the worry about commercial offices really I'm sorry, Mr. Egan, if there's yes. a way that they can make it bigger, because okay. it, it is exactly the size it looks like on the yeah. screen, <laughs> which means we can't read it. Yes, uh, uh, through Mr. Egan and also to, uh, uh, to the vice chair, yes, we are working on it. If anyone would like paper copies, we have some. Okay, but just for the, for the record, yeah, it would be good. Oh. What'd you say? Oh, good. Yeah, we have it in our email. I don't know, whatever. For us, the concern with commercial offices, of course, starts when, during the pandemic, most office workers were working at home. And I think there was an expectation by many afterwards um, that end of the pandemic would lead to return to the office. Um, however, most office employees didn't feel that way and didn't expect that. If we could go to the previous slide, actually, though, that's the one I was referring to. Um, a research group from, uh, led by a Stanford economist, Nick Bloom, has been doing surveys, national surveys of workers and employers regarding their work-at-home preferences um, monthly since the pandemic began. And um, in 2020, early in the pandemic, um, Office workers generally, or people who are able to work at home, generally enjoyed working at home and wanted to work at home around three days a week or two and a half to three days a week. Employers, on the other hand, had a different view and expected that when the pandemic was over, uh, work from home would be greatly reduced in the neighborhood of maybe one and a half to two days a week. Um, over time, as the pandemic progressed, those expectations began to narrow. And so their latest survey results were by mid-2022 suggested that employers and employees were more or less agreeing in a, in a range between two and a quarter and two and three quarter days a week um, working from home. Before the pandemic, the average office worker across the country was working at home on average about half a day a week. So if there's a move, and again, this is a national trend from half a day a week to two and a half days a week on average, that's a major change in how offices are just used in the U.S. economy. 
San Francisco is particularly vulnerable to this because office-based industries contribute about 72% of our GDP. So if anything happens to the office sector, it ripples throughout virtually every aspect of the city's economy. Um, let's go on to the next slide. And this one shows office occupancy. The increase, I'm sorry, the, the previous slide, please. I haven't spoken about that one yet. Great, thank you. Um, work from home has obviously reduced the amount of time people spend in the offices. Uh, Castle Systems is an uh, office security company that tracks this and tracks this across metro areas in the country. Nationally, um, all the 10 metro areas they track range between 40 and 60% of normal, which is to say people are spending 40 to 60% of the time in the office that they were doing in 2019. Um, San Francisco is uh, quite slow in its return to office. The last week I checked, I think it was on, uh, yesterday, we were second only to San Jose. You know, San Jose is maybe 39% and we're at about 41%. But even the most returned place, Austin, Texas, is only about 62% of normal. So there really is no widespread return to office. There are some places that are doing it more than others. We are leading this trend of people working remotely. And it's had implications for the office market. If we could go on to the next slide. Every major office market in the country has seen a significant increase in vacant space since the start of the pandemic. But there's no place that has seen this more than San Francisco, where we had about a 5% office vacancy rate in 2019. And in the third quarter of this year, it was 24%. So that turnaround is something that's stronger in San Francisco um, than anywhere else in the country. Next slide, please. Initially, the vacant office space um, was primarily sublease space, and that's the story from 2020 and 2021. Um, and that means that the previous tenants, large tech companies in most cases, were still paying rent to the property owner, but no longer needed the space. As of the middle of this year, we're starting to see that change. Direct vacancies are now the majority. And that's significant, particularly for property taxes, because that means for the first time, most of the vacant space is actually reducing the property income. Uh, the owners of those buildings are making less money, and I believe the market would say these buildings are worth less than they were before when they were earning higher income. That's not the only factor, however, that's affecting property income. I'll speak about that in a moment. If we could go on to the next slide. Um, we've reviewed office forecasts from a number of um, uh, sources, and the, the national brokerage firm JLL has produced uh, forecasts of office vacancy and office rent for a number of metro areas, and this is their forecast for San Francisco. Uh, where those lines diverge is where we are now in the third quarter, the end of the third quarter of this year. Um, in their best case scenario, by 2026, we basically get our office vacancy rate down to where it was at the worst of the dot-com crash 20 years ago, which if you remember San Francisco at that time, was a major, major economic shock to the city. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario that they have presented shows the office vacancy rate going up from where it is now around 24% to north of 30% before it starts to decline. But under no scenario are we anywhere back to normal by 2026. Next slide, please. 
The office rent forecast that they have is not as dire, but it points to either a very slow recovery in office rents, we've already seen a decline of about 15%, um, or below trend growth throughout the forecast period. So in the worst case scenario, we don't see rents get back to normal by 2026. Um, in the best case scenario, we do, but the growth in that, in that period is lower than it normally is. And I should say, these are just forecasts, but they're important for us. We're not uh, watching the office market dynamics on a daily basis like these people are. And so what we really did was draw on these forecasts to build our own model of how this might affect San Francisco's property tax. If we could go on to the next slide. There's one other factor. Um, that's not related to work from home, that's likely to affect the city's property taxes, and we're just talking about offices today, and that's rising interest rates. Um, when interest rates rise, um, the rate of return that investors are gonna require from owning real estate, including San Francisco office buildings, are going to have to rise as well. If you can get 4.5% from the federal government, you're gonna need to get more than 4.5% to take a risk from owning a San Francisco office building. And that's going to affect, given what a property's income is, what you're gonna bid for it. So really, if interest rates rise and what's called the capitalization rate, which is the required rate of return on San Francisco offices, if those rise in turn, then property values fall. And it's really just a matter of math. Um, in the previous decade, we were seeing capitalization rates in the 5 to 6% range. Based on forecasts that we've seen from national economists, we could be looking at 7 to 8% capitalization rates uh, throughout this decade. That doesn't seem like a big jump, but it's the denominator of a number that affects the property value, and so it is, in fact, a significant uh, decline to property values. So really, over our five-year forecast period that we're thinking about, we have two major shocks to property values. One is reduced property income, office vacancies, reduced rents from work from home, and on the other hand, rising interest rates, which are likely to persist and be higher than they were in the last decade. Next slide, please. So, and I think you'll hear this more from the assessor's office later, but just to set the, uh, a little bit of context, the office sector is not the majority of the property tax in San Francisco. It's about 18% of the total. But economically speaking, offices really drive demand for a lot of other uh, types of real estate in San Francisco. One of the major reasons that San Francisco housing is so expensive is because it gives people access to jobs in San Francisco that pay very well. If we're entering a world where you don't have to be in San Francisco, at least not as often to earn those high wages, then demand for San Francisco housing drops. Here again, we're just focused on offices. So just to kind of reiterate what I've said, if vacancies rise and rents fall, property income drops, that's part of property values. If capitalization rates rise, that also contributes to falling property value. The really important thing for property tax, though, is the assessed value of a property can never be higher than its market value. If a property owner believes that their market value has fallen so much that they're overassessed, they're assessed for more than what the property is worth, they can appeal that assessment either to the assessor or to the AAB, the Assessment Appeals Board. And that's where the city's property tax risk comes from. There are certain mitigating factors, and they'll show up in our forecast. Uh, Proposition 13, which limits how much assessed value can rise, um, has meant that in San Francisco, 
most properties, unless they've sold quite recently, are assessed below their market value, which means they can basically accept a, some reduction in their market value before their property tax payment would go down. Another mitigating factor is long-term leases. Um, many of the office buildings in downtown have leases that have fixed rent payments um, you know, until the end of the decade or longer, and that is going to lock in some aspect of the, some part of the property's income until that time. Um, and so those will be limiting factors of the city's property tax risk going forward. Just to speak very briefly about the model, and I'm not going to get very technical about it on the next slide, uh, we are relying on JLL's market scenarios, the ones I talked about earlier, to drive our property tax forecast. If we could go on to the next slide. Thank you. Um, for every property in our sample of about 200 downtown office buildings, we estimate their market value under assumptions about what happens with property income and what happens with capitalization rates from, from uh, 2021 until 2028. We also forecast the assessed value of that property, assuming it doesn't sell, and then the model keeps track of the situations where the assessed value is over the market value, and that's where the city experiences the revenue loss. So just to provide a sense of what that looks for, like on the next slide, we've turned the three JLL market forecasts into property tax loss scenarios. Um, JLL's uh, up scenario, which is basically, yes. I'm so sorry. Sure. Supervisor Chan just has a quick question. I'm sorry. Sorry, I just want to make sure that I understand what JLL is before you continue on. JLL used to stand for Joan Lang LaSalle. They're an office broker. I think they're just JLL now, but Got that's it. who they are. Thank you. I just want to make sure I yeah. understand the context before you move forward. It's Thank not an sorry. acronym, and I don't think question. so. Um, so their um, up scenario or optimistic scenario, if that was what that implies for our property tax revenue is fairly limited in the 2021 period, which we're, we're working through appeals through now, um, but it could go up to $100 million by the end of our forecast period. And we're really looking forward five years for the 23 to 28 period. They're more pessimistic uh, scenario. Um, and these scenarios might change. These are scenarios that are just as of last quarter. Uh, would take that loss up to nearly 200 million by 2028. And again, this is just for declines in the office sector. Can you, um, put, can you put that into context? What, um, what a loss of 100 to 200 million dollar in property tax would mean to mm -hmm. our budget? Well, I can put it in the context of the overall property tax paid by offices, yeah. which is around 560 million a year. So it's between maybe. Um, 15 and 35 percent of the total that would be that would be uh, lost there and, and then how does that how does that impact our budget well that these numbers would be budget impacts I don't know if my colleague Michelle has anything further to add so in the current oh, Michelle or my controllers office in the current fiscal year I think our um, excluding excess EREF, which has its own sort of set of inputs, um, kind of property tax is about, in the general fund, is about $2.1 billion. Billion? Yeah. In terms of our overall budget? So out of the $16 billion budget, it's $2.1 billion? Um, no, it's more than that because we have set-asides for parks, open space, children. Um, the total for those as well would probably be closer to $2.5 billion. 
But in terms of the direct impact to our budget, losing 100 to 200 million, is it a dollar for dollar loss? Yes. So it would be like blowing a hole in our budget of about 100 to 200 million. Yes. I just wanted to be clear on that because sometimes the numbers don't correlate exactly. That's a, that's a revenue number, yes. Yeah, uh, Chair Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think if, if the question was assessed value and then how does that kind of flow through and become revenue, I think uh, Dr. Egan's talking about revenue, dollars, right. so budget impact. Yes. So what I, what's interesting to me, and I'm curious just in terms of like how long these impacts would take because so many of the services that we're providing in San Francisco and subsidies have to do with our huge costs of housing. So if you're saying that potentially property values are going to come down and so housing costs are going to come down, does that mean, and I know this is not going to be a one for one, but I'm just, I'm just curious, like the long-term goal you know, the Yimbies would say build as, you know, as much market rate po as possible and housing costs couldn't come down. I've always questioned that assumption. But I'm just wondering if, it go if, if it's this route, if, you know, office rates are down, federal interest rates are up, therefore housing prices go down. I'm, I'm wondering what the impact on the need for all of our services are that we spend that hundred to two hundred million dollars on, uh, Supervisor. I think in general that's a complicated question because of course it is. But you, I, I'd love I'd love your thoughts on it. Well, I think the first thing I would note is that San Francisco has seen a decline in apartment rents since the start of the pandemic. We're still down about ten percent, notwithstanding all the inflation we have had. Uh, we are unique among large cities in seeing rents lower now than they were before the pandemic. We had the biggest population drop of any city in the United States from 2020 to 2021. So that's 7% of the people we served in 2020 no longer here. Uh, I think the rest of your question is how does the composition of the city's population change? As a result of this, I think there's two things we've seen, and I'm just talking about the census data I've looked at from 2019 to 2021. Over 50% of the food service workers who lived in San Francisco in 2019 were not living in San Francisco in 2021. This was a sector where the job losses were over 50% during that period. I think our arts and leisure overall lost 70% of their jobs, were down 70% at one point. It's clear many of the workers in that industry moved out of San Francisco. And uh, whether, and it's also true that that sector has been slow to add jobs despite a recovering in tourism and labor shortage has been part of that. So uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm very worried about that sector long-term because in many ways, um, uh, once you move out of San Francisco, it's expensive to move back in. Um, the other major demographic change that's clear from the census data is we've seen highly skilled workers move out of San Francisco, despite the fact that there are companies that have been, until very recently, hiring lots of people. And this is particularly older manager-level people in the tech sector and other office-using sectors. Um, so the first group sort of moved out because of economic distress hitting their sector. The second group really moved out because they could remote work. 
Um, it's clear that San Francisco housing prices, uh, at least rents are lower. Housing prices for condos and things like that are up, but by much lower than they are nationally. Um, but I'd say to answer kind of your original question, there's a big difference you have to keep in mind between housing prices and housing affordability. Right. Um, if housing prices are low because a mortgage is twice as expensive as it was before, it's no more affordable. <laughs> yeah. If rents are down 10%, but you got laid off, housing is not more affordable. Um, and so that's why I would say if you are, have stable income and you haven't lost your job, your wages are, are, have been steady or rising, and, and you would like to move and find someplace bigger in the city, you have an opportunity to get more affordable housing. The people who used to work in restaurants in 2019 and want to move back because they're trying to grow, they don't have an opportunity for more affordable That's housing. really helpful context. Can I ask one other question? Yeah. How, how much did the, remind me how much the population of San Francisco has declined? About 7% between 2020 and 2021. We don't know the 2022 numbers yet. Okay. And so, and, and, and do you have projections about what's going to happen to our population? I wouldn't call them projections. Um, <laughs> do you have guesses? <laughs> I mean, I think in the near term, um, the state of the kind of macro economy is going to drive things. Like, we are seeing layoffs now in the tech sector for the first time since the start of the pandemic. I'm not surprised by that. Um, I think the tech sector is liable to to be hit harder during this recession, and therefore the city will be hit harder in this recession than the rest of the country. There's a range of opinions about what's going to happen to the U.S. economy over the next year, but I think the majority opinion is we're going to have a mild recession. It could be worse than that. Um, so I think in San Francisco, we're likely to have a slightly worse than mild recession would be kind of the most... Um, uh, Mr. Egan? Yes. because we're... I no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. But there's a few more things on this particular point that I think will help feed what you're asking for. Okay. But, but I just wanted you to finish your thought. I'll, I'll try and wrap. Um, that's going to limit the number of people who want to move to San Francisco. Um, and so I think if I was to say what the 2022 numbers will most likely show, it will probably show fewer people leaving and, and, and very few people moving in. Thank you. No, no, thank you. I think those are great questions. I just wanted him to, on the, the property tax loss, that's one of the things that you highlighted. And I know on the next slide, you know, there's different ranges from 100 to 200 million. And you kind of summarize some of the forecasts. But a couple of the things you didn't talk about was the potential of business tax loss. And then also Prop I, which is property transfer tax loss, which also feeds into vacancy... Oh inflation rates, interest rates, and, and property value. So if, if you could also just speak on that for a moment, that would be helpful. Sure. Um, and then after I answer your question, Supervisor Safai, I'll talk about my last slide. And yes, then I can, sure. Um, uh, I, you know, we have built this model to try to understand the, the forces affecting office and what that does to property tax. But you're right that, that other revenue streams are also affected. Um, uh, in terms of business tax, when we just look at the business tax base, um, it's reduced when um, people are not coming into offices in San Francisco. The amount of gross receipts that businesses apportion to San Francisco has declined unless those people also live in San Francisco. 
So we have lost revenue for that reason. We've also seen amidst, I think, the uncertainties in the, in the local office market, um, large commercial transactions are much lower than they were before. Um, and so we are not seeing the revenues from transfer tax that, that we would have seen um, in more normal times. Um, so is there any way, I know you haven't done this today, but I just want to highlight a few of the four categories. So you're talking about property tax today, and it says potentially a loss of 100 to 200 million by next year. But then there's also the business tax taxes. There's also gross receipts tax, which I know falls under business tax, but there's, that's just one I wanted to highlight. There's Prop I, which over the last couple of years, because of the economy and the property valuations and the sales, that has fed a significant um, amount of money. And then what you highlighted here today. So it would be good to see the overall potential loss in the upcoming 23, 24, because that will help inform this committee, but also help inform some of the decisions uh, that we make going forward that both Supervisor Stephanie and I are already working on, but also have highlighted a little bit here today. Um, if we could go to the final slide, I'll, I will conclude with the answer to your uh, final question there, Supervisor Safai. Thank so, you. So just to summarize, we're looking at potentially an 80 to $150 million loss by by 2026 under, under JLO's public forecast. If things don't improve, that could widen to 100 to 200 million by 2028. And that's annually? Yes, as of that year. So it's not next year, but it is by 2028. That would be um, the amount we would lose. Um, there are, of course, caveats to this. And, and I think the first is that um, there's an unusual level of volatility and uncertainty in the office market right now. Um, uh, employers may have a renewed desire and leverage to encourage workers to come back to the office. We may see office attendance go back up in a recession. People have suggested that might happen. If that turns into increased office demand, some of these things um, may reverse themselves. So that's why it was important for us to build our model that's connected to an outside forecast. If the outside forecast change, we can quickly change our model. We think it's prudent, given the uh, data I've already shared with you, to assume that we're going to see a less than normal amount of office demand in our five-year forecast period. Um, I also mentioned the mitigating factors, which will mean these aren't immediate major financial risks for the city, but they are inevitable unless we see a major return to the office. We do expect that they will happen if office demand is permanently reduced um, by, by this remote work. And to finally answer your question, uh, Supervisor Safai, my colleagues in the controller's office will in December um, roll out full updated five-year forecasts of all major revenue streams. We've been working with them on, on all of them, and they will reflect all of the things you talked about across those revenue streams. Do you, I don't know if Michelle wants, no, she, she's asking you to stay tuned. Michelle, come on. <laughs> I'm just um, kidding. No, and probably this is what um, the controller is telling you as well. So we, will, um, we are preparing our forecast. Um, and it will be issued in the first half of December, and it's what sits underneath. Um, it advises the mayor's budget instructions to departments, and she will instruct departments based on a number of factors, but one of them being the revenue that um, we have forecasted to spend. When you say mid-December, hopefully it's before we break for the holidays. Absolutely. 
Yes. And that hopefully before our last budget committee hearing, meeting. Quite likely, yes. What is your last budget committee hearing? September the 7th? 7th. Really? Oh, yeah. That's right. I think Maybe we're we targeting a... December 10th or-ish. Not before. Maybe we can get a draft. So it'll be the first thing we do when we come back is have a hearing on that, on that report. Okay, anyway, thank you. So we, we can talk about that further. Did you have anything else? Uh, Supervisor Stephanie Ronan or Chan, do you have anything that you wanted to say? Oh, su Supervisor, Go ahead. Stephanie. Supervisor Stephanie, and then I have another question. Thank you. I just wanted to thank you so much for this thorough presentation. A lot of times um, when we do letters of inquiry, we don't get this level of information. I know more is coming as you build out the model, so thank you for that. I just wanted um, one point we've been talking about a lot is office to residential or office to other types of conversions, which we know is not easy to do. And I'm wondering if you think whether or not that might help mitigate some of the property tax losses and, um, of course, the general fund impacts. Uh, as a general principle, I think it would not because I don't expect it to happen. Um, as I mentioned, office demand drives housing demand. And if you look at San Francisco housing prices in context, um, they, are, they have seen much less growth than virtually everywhere else in the United States. And what that means for a developer uh, is uh, they're facing rising construction costs with inflation being at a 40-year high, and they're seeing falling revenues and uncertain revenues. Um, so unless office properties can be picked up very cheaply, and that doesn't seem to be happening in the office market, then there's really no incentive for a developer to do that at this time. When, you know, over the five or six years we're talking about, I think the office market is going to adjust. It may very well be that we see vacancy come down faster because we see rents come down faster and people want their buildings full and, and, and we have clarity there. And if, if that results with office buildings being worthless, there may be cases in which a housing developer may um, be able to um, uh, secure an office property to do that. I don't expect that to happen for the vast majority of the office space in the city. I think the office market is just going to adjust to reduce demand and, and you may have more flex space and hoteling space and businesses that couldn't afford to be in San Francisco before um, occupying downtown. Um, and that we may have more people sort of loosely connected to our office space, but not coming in every day. Um, so I can see a lot of things happening, but a wholesale conversion from office to residential, I just don't think is in the cards. Thank you for that very honest perspective. I think that's the <laughs> uh, most um, honest I've heard yet. So I really do appreciate that. And I, you know, I just, when you look at San Francisco and we're at the, um, the bottom of recovery compared to other cities, like I mentioned in my opening remarks, is there anyone really examining why? And I know that might not fall within your domain, but I'm sure you're working with other departments um, or the mayor's office in terms of why is San Francisco not, and I don't think it's just tech. I don't think it's just the fact that we are so reliant on our tech workers. Are there reasons why people aren't coming back to the office that anyone is discussing um, that are different from other cities? Um, what I, what I have um, 
tried to look at is ways in which San Francisco stand out from other places. As I mentioned, this is a national phenomenon, and even the most active places in terms of return to the office uh, are at about 60, 65% of normal. I think that the comparison to the South Bay actually is the most interesting one, because that's another place where it's a lot of tech workers, only about 40% of normal of office occupancy, but the office market down there is much hotter. You're not seeing companies walk away from office space. You're seeing companies kind of positioning themselves for future demand for office space down there. Of course, that's tra the traditional home of the tech industry and is sort of the most blue chip office space for the tech industry. Um, you know, we're not really used to thinking this about downtown San Francisco, but I think the industry is looking at it as, as a somewhat more risky place to expand than the South Bay. At least how, that's how I read those particular trends. And um, I don't really think we're a good comparison with with Texas or Miami or any of the other places, but I think a lot about how we relate to the rest of the Bay Area. And, um, you know, I do think that the uncertainty that office tenants feel about expanding in San Francisco seems to be real from the data that I'm looking at. And I think anything we can do to sort of convey that the business climate here will stabilize will make us more in line with what the rest of the Bay Area is experiencing. Thank you, that's really helpful. I don't have any further questions at this Thank time. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Supervisor Ronan, did you have another question? Yes. Um, first of all, I, I agree, Supervisor Stephanie. For, first of all, thank you to both of you for calling this hearing. I'm, this is very, very interesting. Um, I wish you had been there last night in our discussion <laughs> about the housing element and the 82,000 units that we're supposed to build in the upcoming years. I'm just curious your thoughts on, on that. My understanding is we have 60,000 vacant units in the city. We have a 7% reduction of our population. We, at least your guess is that we won't have much change to the population in the upcoming years. So do you think that this requirement to build 82,000 units is is overstated, is too much? Is is <clears throat> Well, um, I, I, would, I would look at it in two ways. Um, the first is, you know, does the city have an interest in seeing housing prices come down? And does the city enact policies that prevent housing prices from going down? I think the answer, well, I don't have a, the first question is, is purely one for the elected officials. But as an economist, I think the city clearly has policies that prevent housing prices from going down most of the restrictions in the planning code effectively prevent housing production and keep housing prices from going down. Now, do we, does it make sense for the state to have targets that are set at a regional level and every eight years you have to hit them? That's the way we plan for housing and it's probably not a perfect system. I mean, as of 2021, over the past 20 years, the city has a net gain of 30,000 people. In other words, after the loss, the 7% loss, we have 30,000 more people than we had in 2001. We built 65,000 housing units. Like, that's a fairly long-term perspective. And you might say, well, why 82,000 more if we built, if, you know, if we built 65 for the 30 that we've added? Um, 
It depends on how you want to look at it. If you want to look at it as we want to change policies that prevent housing prices from being so expensive, then amendments to the planning code could affect that. If you want to say what's the right target for it, I find that to be tricky, and we're in a situation, as you suggest, where um, perhaps numeric targets don't seem aligned with where we really are at the moment. Thank you. That's helpful. Okay. Okay. Um, one thing I wanted to make oh, sure. Oh, Supervisor Chan. Well, no, I was I was going to ask. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Supervisor Chan. Sorry. No, no. Go ahead. So I just want to add to that, though. So <laughs> you attributed that planning code is. I am assuming that what you're saying or what you're suggesting that planning code is one of the factors that preventing house prices coming down. Or are you saying that planning code is the factor preventing housing prices coming down? Well, no, it's not the only factor. It's sure. the factor that the city controls. I see. That's a good point. Um, because I, I, I also have a question then. I, I mean, now that we're... I didn't think that we're going to talk about housing, but but um, <laughs> vice chair stuff I use like we're well, no, I'm we're not. My head. Uh, but but I just kind of want to. But I just want to because the answer was planning code. Therefore, I need to just kind of drill down a little bit because I, because your premise of your projection or your analysis is that um, you know what we're seeing is job loss. Job loss contributes to housing price coming down because the demand has decreased and so far we see 7% of um, population loss and therefore we see roughly 10% of housing calls or, or housing costs decrease by 10%. Sounds like, you know, there, there seems to be a coalition. Now, however, though, when you talk about also job losses, um, there were also job increases, right, in the last two years? There have been some. Um, the sector that's added the most jobs in the last two years is the tech sector, by far. Um, they're just not coming into offices. Um, I believe healthcare and social assistance also added a couple thousand, maybe 3,000 jobs. And because according to your own report in October, you said that, you know, uh, in the last two years that the significant of job loss really is hospitality, like restaurants and food. And then, but there were actually also in the same time period, significant increases of uh, information which yes. is technology and information. And, and in fact, it's quite significant. And in, in, in fact, that they're actually, I don't have the chart right now on my hand, but they were almost opposite parallel. Um, and so it, that is the part where I, I think I'm not challenging <laughs> what you just said, but it's also see that um, I, I'm just trying to solidify the, the association of job loss and housing decrease, but then, anyways, but you did actually state it at the very beginning that, you know, it's a very complicated situation with housing prices. I, I think my, my point is I just want to make sure that there, I think there are many other things that the city can still do besides planning code change to make sure that the pri housing prices can come down. Um, anyways. Sorry, I, I, I just, I, I think I lost my point now. No, it's okay. Uh, no, it's okay. I just, I, we still have two more presenters, and I, I just wanted to get one more point on the record. Um, this is something that we've talked about in our working group, and I just don't need a long explanation, but I think it's something important to emphasize. Um, and I know Ben had presented this to us in our working group. 
Just for the record, what's the percentage of our workforce is professional and tech technical? I don't do, have do, that do, memorized. Do you remember, uh, <laughs> Mr. Controller? Because I think it's to Supervisor Stephanie and Supervisor Ronan's previous question. I think it's important to put that on the record. Good afternoon, Supervisors Ben Rosenfield, Controller. I think uh, the fact you're referencing Supervisor Safai is the rough proportion of our GDP that's right. generated well, in office industries. And I, I think, the, as I recall, the answer there is 67 to 70% of our GDP is attributable to sectors that work out of offices. Right, and then professional and technical is a significant portion of that. The largest single component of that is And, and one of the technical. things, just for the record, that you showed us in our work group was that over the last 20 years for other committee members, that was not always the case, but we've shifted significantly to that professional and technical portion of our sector, which also made us that much more vulnerable to remote work and the changes in office off occupancy patterns. Is that correct, Mr. Controller? I, I think if you look at the 20-year trend, and uh, Mr. Egan can, can speak to this more eloquently than I, but if you look at the 20-year trend of growth in the city, the very things that drove our growth during that period of time professional services and tech in particular have also left us uniquely susceptible at this moment in time to the kind of pressures Ted's talking about. So, yes. Right. If I could just offer one. Yeah, no. I mean, I, a lot I, of people absolutely. have suggested that the pandemic represents a major change in how the city is economy has evolved, but I don't think that's accurate. The trend you're talking about is one in which um, <clears throat> high-wage industries can thrive in an expensive city. Industries that pay medium or low wages cannot, and they've been shrinking as a, as a share for at least 20 years. What we've seen since the pandemic is the high-wage industries can continue to grow. In fact, they've grown even more because they can save on rent, they can save on housing prices if their workers don't have to be here, but the lower-wage industries that rely on them the restaurants and the local local retailers, the personal services, they don't have any customers. Uh, they have a 7% drop in their customer base. So they shrink even more. So it, it continues the divide between the high-wage and the low-wage sectors in the city's economy. Right. And that that's part of the point I was trying to emphasize. Also, I think there's a misconception, even though it's a significant portion of our GDP, tourism is still much smaller than the amount of GDP that's been created over the last number of years from our professional services, information, technology. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it is. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think leisure and hospitality is less than 10% of the GDP. Right. Okay. Um, and then just, just to end on a note in terms of we talked about the impact to our budget in terms of some of the loss in revenue and property tax and others. Some of that has to definitely correlates with office occupancy and our downtown revitalization. Just to end on, a, on another note, are there any particular industries or types because we've been so over-reliant on professional services and technology, are there other industries that you would recommend uh, that our city pursue or look into? Well, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development is beginning a piece of research with outside consultants to look at this question. What are potential growth areas, industries right. that may be doing well in the Bay Area that San Francisco could get a, a larger share of? I mentioned earlier that, that there's probably going to be an office 
market readjustment that may make San Francisco offices more affordable in the future, and that may create economic development opportunities we haven't had for a while. Um, so I don't want to sort of preempt that actual research with guesses on my part, if you don't mind, Supervisor. All right, I guess that's okay, but that's what we want you to do. That's what economists do. They make forecasts and projections. I, I try to make informed ones, and I'm not <laughs> informed on that specific. <laughs> no, I understand, but I, I, I guess what I would say is I'm not asking you to guess, but I think it would say just kind of broad strokes. It might be helpful to hear. I'll, I'll mention one that people have, right. have talked about that I think is a good target, and that's biotech. Right. You know, biotech employment in San Francisco has doubled in the last five years. It builds on obvious strengths locally. The Bay Area is the, the leading biotech cluster in the, in the country, and it makes sense for San Francisco to, to pursue that. It's still about the tenth the size of information technology in San Francisco, so it's not going to replace, replace IT, but it's certainly a good target. And also South San Francisco has done a significant amount of work. In the oh, sure to attract and make themselves much more. And I guess, I guess I would end with this, and before I call on Supervisor Chan, I mean, there's a number of things that we will come back on this. Uh, we'll, I think I'll ask the chair to continue this to the college chair so we can reschedule and come back with an additional update. This is like the third one in the series that we've worked on you all with, but I think we, we need to then have a conversation to some of the points that were made here if the South Bay, which is similar to us, is more robust, is more attractive, then there are certain factors that we have control over with regard to our real estate and, and our taxes, our policies and others that we need to have a conversation about. And that would be helpful for you to look at. That's why I ended with Prop I, gross receipts, some of the others, because as we've talked to people in the industry when they're making their financial decisions in this really rough economy, they're thinking, what is the cost of doing business in San Francisco versus just over the border or just south in the South Bay? And all of those things matter. In our economy, when it is thriving and we're that much more competitive, it's easier to have these additional inputs that they have to factor in. But at this point, it becomes disincentives. And I think we need to have that honest conversation. Do you have any response to that? I'm, we're happy to assist in any way that you Good. would like us to, Supervisor. Okay. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Vice Chair Safai. Sorry, my apologies. I think I finally found my connection of what I was trying to say is that <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes I am hungry and then I forget. Um, I uh, was, was actually um, about, you know, that there's obviously job growth not until recently, the last two weeks, but there has been significant job growth in the technology and information sectors. While downtown office space has been sitting empty was actually my point. And then, um, and what we see actually is significant loss of tourism and food and restaurants workers, and that's the job loss. And then when we come to think about office uh, space, or in this case, in this context of office space tax revenue. And, and we're seeing that they have decreased because, not because of loss of employment, well, at least during the last two years, but it's really the loss of use of the space. Um, so, and that kind of brought to some of the, you know, um, thought around housing, of course, it's just like how it's, there are also 60,000 units sitting empty, according to the most recent BLA report. All which is to say um, is 
that you know some of the ways that the city has thought as a policy um, to help price housing price to come down or the certain pricing to come down or and to feed our economy is to tax vacant spaces and in this case we agreed before pandemic that commercial tax uh, vacancy should be uh, taxed and so we implemented that and then now we also identify empty homes units and therefore the voters have just approved that so i guess a question to you and post to you is one does the commercial uh, uh vacancy tax apply is it applicable to office and in the event it's not should that be something that the city contemplate um, in the future if we start to see like to, to encourage some type of activities um, in the events that we continue to see, hopefully growth, maybe that's temporary layoff and pauses, but what, what about you know, if we wanna see a more robust use of those spaces? Uh, thank you, um, Supervisor. Um, our office did economic impact reports on both the commercial vacancy tax and the recently passed residential vacancy tax. And um, to answer your first question, the offices are not covered under the commercial vacancy tax. It's for ground floor only, if I recall. Um, those vacancy taxes, and actually, we had first suggested that supervisors consider that in the context of the mid-market tax um, incentive of 10 plus years ago. Um, they can be effective where there's evidence that landlords are behaving strategically and keeping rents, asking rents abnormally high for some reason. Um, if, they, if the vacancy is not for that reason, but because of a lack of demand, the tax can actually make it worse. So I would suggest to people considering any potential new vacancy tax that they think about whether there actually is evidence of that kind of, I'm not even sure how to characterize the behavior, but one in which you say, I just don't feel comfortable lowering rents and I'm willing to give up the income or whether it's just like there isn't any demand and it doesn't really matter what, what we're asking. As we said in our report on the commercial vacancy tax, um, you know, retail demand for space in San Francisco has been declining for 20 years. That was part of the conversation that we've already had. That's the major reason we have vacancies, not because landlords are, are being unreasonable. And if you're imposing the tax on a landlord who isn't being unreasonable, you've just given them another reason to disinvest in the property, which is not you know, going to, to promote economic development. So I always think those are the considerations, is how do you tailor it to really focus on, on where you know there's bad behavior and, and minimize a consequence where you're just encouraging people not to invest in the city? Well, I mean, the, the interesting part of that, like, right, the mayor actually has consistently, and I think Vice Chair Safai also has said that, that it's the mandating of people coming back to work in person. Perhaps that is a cure of the downtown. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I've said mandate. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, um, my name's you not, strongly my name's not, encourage. My name's not Elon. <laughs> you, you strongly encourage in-person activities back to downtown uh, as a way to... to Definitely. I definitely have said we need to be more considerate of that and how it impacts the economy and all the service sector. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely think coming back doesn't need to be five days a week, doesn't need to be mandated, but certainly some form of return to work would have a significant impact. As you've seen today, it, it will have a significant impact on our economy.
Well, so then I think that's the question, like, you know, um, maybe it's a chicken and egg question, but then what, what does that mean if, if that or that culture of sort of like work from home um, is to stay or, or are we, are we, and I'm just posing this to, to this conversation. So, or are we suggesting at this moment and juncture of, of, of this, what we're looking at downtown is that perhaps, because you mentioned biotech, because then that's, while that may be different, but you know, uh, different industry, I, I, I think the, the, the question is, will that a change of use of office space in San Francisco, is a direction that we're heading, or is a direction that we're heading is mandating people coming back to work in person? I don't, I don't, I can tell you right now, I, I don't believe there would be anything that we could do as a city to mandate. I think there's a lot of things that we can do to encourage and incentivize. I think those are some of the things that we're talking about today. It's some of the things we're talking about in our working group, but certainly there are some policy decisions that we've made over the course of last year with very good intentions that have now we have to take a look at and see, are those disincentives for people coming back into the office? Like because, what? Like the gross receipts. I mean, there is in some ways, and I think the econo city economists will tell you, part of the calculation for a company to pay gross receipts has to do with the amount of time employees are actually physically in the office. So if an employer says, sure, work remotely from home, that impacts their gross receipts liability. Is that correct? If employees are not in the office physically? It does result in savings in their gross receipts tax. We've looked at this question, however, as has the companies that have seen the biggest increases in tax rates? Are no, they no, I, oh, I okay. know you said that there's only a handful right. that are currently paying the gross. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I get excited. <clears throat> Thus far, we haven't seen a connection between businesses facing a higher tax rate post-2018 and systematically reducing their time spent in the office. Um, you know, that is, as you're right, Supervisor Safai, that is an incentive. We haven't seen that really materialize systematically yet. But we do know that there, from one of the last reports, we do know that there are a significant number whose gross receipts have reduced below. We don't know if that has to do with office to sit. So there's still TBD. It certainly happened. It yeah. is certainly true that people are not coming to the office and that affects our gross receipts. Tax. I'm just using that as one example. I'm not saying that, that I'm, I'm only using that as one example. An another example would be um, property sales. You asked about office conversion. The value of properties today, given the current market and the lending rates, doesn't dictate the ability to even convert if they wanted to. The value of the property has dropped so low, the amount of return on investment doesn't equal the amount of money it would take to convert that office from office to living space. Some of those inputs are the open, as Supervisor Stephanie noted, the open space fee, the impact fees, the prop I, when you transfer the property, if someone's going to invest, it's, it changes in hands. There's a 6% immediate tax on the on the gross of the sale and then there's and then there's um the inclusionary if you're changing it to a, so all of those inputs make any of those conversions today impossible no one would do that today there's no ability for that to happen given the value unless the person owned the property 
already and then was going to self-finance the conversion, which is when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, is just, just doesn't happen. I, I, if I could just <laughs> through the chair to Vice Chair uh, Safai, I think I just want to, uh, my observation, and I just want to respond to this. I, I do not think that the, the few years back we had the, um, really what known as now as the Twitter <laughs> tax break, payroll tax break as a, as a way that we thought was a, a good strategy to incentivize uh, tech companies to come in and then really help us revitalize uh, mid-market. I, I don't think that it really materialized. In fact, I think it sort of like blew up and, and backfired and, and in so many ways that we see the, the displacements that the city suffer. I, I think that uh, there is going to be, there needs to be a conversation and, and lessons learned and really re like think, of, think things through about in the events that we think having, providing any type of tax break to any industry um, as an as a incentive to boost our economy. I am happy to have those conversations, and I'm happy to see, you know, um, Mr. Egan's feedback on those and, and many others. Um, but I, I just want to put it out there. By my no, I appreciate that. I want to hand you. it over to Supervisor Stephanie, and, and I, I can res I can respond to that a little bit too. But we do have two more people in the queue to present. Thank you, Vice Chair Safai. Not saying I'm not <laughs> no. saying that to you. No, I'm no, no. I, I just wanted to say something really quick because I do want to get to the other presentations. But just in terms of you know why I place a lot of emphasis on San Francisco being last and what is the difference, I have actually spoken with many employers and I've I've spoken with many employees downtown who are not coming back and who have decided to stay home. And you know when you ask them why, it's two basic things is downtown clean and is downtown safe. And we, as a city, have to provide the incentives for them to want to come back to work. And just saying you have to come back to work or telling the employers, you know, you, you have to get your employees back, we have to do our part. And uh, they say that, you know, they don't feel safe. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people don't want to be downtown. There's a lot of restaurants that um, aren't there anymore. There's not a lot to do. There are many different reasons they don't want it. There's not the transportation that they once had. We are bringing it back slowly. They don't want to ride BART. They don't feel BART safe. So there are a lot of different reasons that play into that that's different from, like, you, uh, this different from different cities that San Francisco, I think, might be unique. But, and also with regard to building owners, I have convened many building owners. They can't give away some of this retail uh, space. There, there was one building owner that told me they were trying to bring in a very popular restaurant, and they said, we'll give it to you for a dollar a month. And the restaurant said, no way. I am not bringing my employees. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking the risk to operate downtown. And so that's, you know, we as a city have to do our part and figure out how we provide those incentives, how we do the basics, the baseline that cities should do, which is make people feel like when they come into downtown that they're safe, that they're coming to a clean city, and that they're coming into a thriving city. And that's on us to figure that out. So I just wanted to thank add that. Thank you. Supervisor Chen, I, I want to just give you one kind of real case study. So when I worked with the janitor's union, we were part of the debate about the mid-market tax break. And there were a lot of hard feelings on both sides, and there were a lot of strong feelings on both sides. But the, 
the former Furniture Mart building, that actually switched hands. So there was a transfer of ownership to Shorenstein. Shorenstein Properties put in over a billion dollars into that property. So that was all union work going into that, a billion dollars to rehab that property, to make space for, which ended up being Twitter, which ended up being multiple companies. All of the janitors that ended up going to work in that building, and they were, they were a multitude of them, who they have all, to Mr. Egan's point, have all been laid off now, because people have not come back into the office. And so there was, a, there was a, a, a significant multiplier effect. There was the transfer tax, there was the creation of the union jobs, there was the permanent jobs that were created. There was a grocery store, for example, that's there that serves a lot of us, I think we all take advantage of it. There were multiple commercial spaces in there. And so when we're talking about right now, based on his projections, um, that, and it's just one of the inputs that talks about the property tax, when we're thinking about that loss of 100 to $200 million because of the, some of our tax structure, some of the decisions that we've made that are, that, that, that are potentially uh, a disincentive, some of it is what Supervisor Stephanie has said, which is clean and safe. I'm not saying there's, there's no silver bullet in anything that we're talking about. And I know we could debate about some of the, 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 the tax, either incentives or decisions that we made. I just, I just wanted to point out that that one example, that was just one building. It was a significant input and had significant uh, results. Uh, but a lot of that was driven by, at the time, the, and yes, you could say the amount of employees that were there drove up housing costs they added to some of the some of the economic divide in the city there's no question about that i i agree with all of those arguments as well i, I i'm only saying that what we're faced with now and i said iceberg supervisor stephanie said it's already hit i mean it is going to be a significant conversation that this committee is going to have to make in the upcoming year where a hundred million dollar hole and that's why we had that, I think we had that presentation at the end of, end of the budget season and, and we're starting to have the same conversation. How much money we actually have on reserve, how much of that money can be utilized, and how long this potential downturn is going to be. That's the only reason I bring it up because I think we have to have an honest conversation about it and try to find a way collectively as a body to make the best decision for San Francisco because nothing from nothing is nothing. So if we're not getting any tax, if we're not getting any return, there is, a, there is a significant impact on that to, we're not able to do a significant amount of the work that we try to do with all of the good things that we did, whether it was math support, whether it was, you know, paras, whether it was all the non like all of that is about what? How much is that, Chair Ronan, that we have in the end of the day in our negotiations, about 30 or 40 million that we were able to work with that was flexible money? So I, I, I just think we, we, we have a lot to consider on this committee coming up. Supervisor Chan? I concur. I mean, I think that's the reason why I've been- Oh, I know you I, do. I know I, you. I, I've been conservative about even a cannabis tax suspension. You know I was gonna bring that <laughs> I out. knew you were gonna bring it <laughs> So all I'm saying is that like, I, I know. Like, and I said that I agree that we- That was a good one. So that's all I'm gonna say. I'm gonna leave it like that. That was a good one. <laughs>
<laughs> Good job. I like that. Okay, Mr. Egan, do you have anything else that you want to add? No, I don't. Super okay, answer. great. Thank you so much. This was a very straightforward and clear uh, presentation. Um, thank you to the controller who floated in and out, but thank you for being here. Um, I think we're going to go to the next presenter, which is our assessor recorder, uh, Joaquin Torres. Are you, are you on the phone or online, Mr. Torres, assessor? Supervisor Safai, I'm right here, sir. Um, uh, I, I think that... Um, uh, Hold on, we want to see your face, Mr. Alipa. Okay, oh, are you down in Stanford today? Good job, I like it. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, thank you, everyone, for having me here today, Chair Ronan, committee members, uh, Supervisor Safai, and uh, Supervisor Stephanie for asking for this presentation. I think that um, uh, Mr. Egan went through a lot of the um, uh, most salient points in relationship to your considerations um, in future committee meetings, but I'm happy to go very quickly through sure. what we've prepared for you and answer any questions. But just in the interest of time, I'll, I'll move pretty quickly through these. Cool. Um, next slide, please. So just, um, I wanted to provide just a quick overview of, of our office in terms of what we're looking at on, a, on an annual basis. Uh, the two sides of our of our office, the assessor and the recorder side, uh, the number of parcels um, uh, that we have um, uh, 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 that we place on the roll, um, over 211,000, um, a consistent value or a value uh, most recently for the most recent fiscal year of about $330 billion, which correlates with about $3.9 billion in property tax revenue. Uh, then of course, on the recorder side, uh, some of the transfer tax conversations that you've been having um, uh, as well in terms of the revenue on the five-year average for us, about $372 million, um, in addition to an audit program that, that ensures that we're not uh, letting uh, people slip through the cracks uh, that have been able to bring us about $72 million uh, over the past five years. Next slide, please. Um, so in terms of... Um, in terms of the uh, uh, overall role growth that we've seen um, over the past five years, just another perspective um, that you've seen a steady growth um, over those years. You can see from fiscal year 18, uh, by $235 billion in assessed value, increasing over time, uh, ranging between 4 and 11% to that latest number that you see at the top of that slide. Um, uh, this represents the most recent one about an increase, about 5.5% increase over the prior year. Um, and that's about an additional $17 billion uh, in assessed value. So while we also work to ensure that we capture this value on the roll, um, we also work very, very hard to ensure that we're defending this value um, as appeals move it forward in the process. Uh, next slide, please. It's a very diverse uh, property tax base uh, distributed across many areas of the city, many types of property. Um, for the most fiscal year that we're in right now, residential real property accounts, residential real property accounts for the single largest property type by value at over 66% um, of the total value. That's about $211 billion in assessed value. Um, commercial real property accounts for 30% of uh, the total role value at approximately $96 billion. Uh, and again, we're including office, retail, hotel, and other commercial properties. And you can see those highlighted uh, uh, here. The downtown commercial accounts for about 22% of the overall role. That's about $69 billion uh, in assessed value. 
Next slide, please. Uh, just to approximate the value of downtown commercial properties, we have defined downtown um, uh, by assessor volumes uh, that you can see here circled in this area. That covers the financial district, uh, Union Square, the Embarcadero, uh, Soma neighborhoods. Um, using this approach uh, of that geographic area, the downtown commercial properties account for about 22% of our total roll value uh, at 69 billion. Um, uh, as, as I provided in the previous slide, with downtown office buildings accounting for about 14% of the total roll value at 47 billion. Um, and that percentage amount has not changed uh, over the past several years. I, I just wanna be clear that the assessed values do not reflect the property's market value, but rather the value that's on the roll. Um, under California's Proposition 13, um, as, as you all know, a property's assessed value may grow only um, uh, at, a, at, at a rate that is no more than 2% per year, unless there's a change in ownership, unless there's a sale or other accessible event, including new construction that may trigger that, that will trigger that new reassessment at market rate. Um, in San Francisco for several decades, the average market value of most types of property has increased by much more than 2% annually. Um, uh, so I, I think that goes without saying when you look at some of the most recent transactions um, uh, uh, to date. Um, let's go ahead and move um, uh, to the next slide. So just in terms of the assessment appeals that are moving forward, this is really where our office is focused as we continue to ensure that we're valuing uh, and getting all that value on the roll um, based on um, uh, uh, our annual uh, responsibilities. But really here, we're, we're focused, uh, as you'll soon hear from the Assessment Appeals Board and ensuring that we are working through these appeals in a timely manner um, uh, based on the information that's provided to us uh, as we move through that process uh, at the AAB, the Assessment Appeals Board. Uh, you can see here that yes, you saw an increase uh, uh, in the number of appeals that we're moving forward beginning in 2021 with a consistent uh, increase in appeals year over year, um, although by about 10% um, or so uh, from the previous years. Um, and uh, that is going to be the main focus uh, for us as we start moving through um, last year's appeals uh, in the fall currently. And then once again, we'll start hearing um, those items that you see here for the current fiscal year of 22-23, those 2,577 uh, in the coming year, in uh, fiscal year 23 and 24. Um, I just want to go ahead and leave it there. I, th I think, again, that, that Ted pretty much covered the most salient questions that you had, but I'm happy to answer any questions uh, in regards to any of the numbers that I presented thus far. All right. Thank you, uh, Assessor Recorder. I don't have any questions. I think it was very straightforward. The one thing we did hear was potentially in the future years the loss of anywhere between 100 and $200 million in property tax value. <laughs> um, so that's something that I'm sure that's on your radar as well as all of us. Any committee members? Yeah, I, I mean... Go, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Sir, no, 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 no. Go if, ahead. I, if I may... Um, I, Certainly, I mean, all, the projection side really does rest with um, the, the controller's office. Um, uh, the, the focus of our work in terms of the actuals that we're looking at, uh, those actuals will play out over time as we move through this appeals process. Um, uh, again, there's value that's been placed on the books. 
Um, uh, how that value is contested is up to the property owner uh, and the appellant. Um, and then we'll start seeing over time as we move through these appeals, um, what the factors are that may um, uh, result in a reduction in value for those properties. In what manner it moves in that direction, we'll see as we start moving through more of these appeals. Great. Any other committee members have any questions? Supervisor Stefani. Yes, thank you. I just wanted to thank our assessor for that very thorough and helpful letter and would just request that as the appeals start moving through the process, and I know you'll do this anyway, just to keep us updated. I know we're going to keep these hearings open, but I'm just very curious to see how that all transpires. But thank you again for such a thorough response to the letter of inquiry. It's our pleasure, Supervisor Stephanie. And yes, our staff is in the process right now of uh, determining what those parameters will be when we have um, how we'll determine what the sample size uh, will be as these appeals move forward for commercial buildings. So we can provide some of those examples, um, obviously, in consultation with the controller's office uh, before we bring those to you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Assessor Recorder Torres. I Appreciate it. Okay, so the next and final presenter today is we have Alistair Gibson from the Assessment Appeals Board. Are you there? I am. Good afternoon, uh, Chair Ronan, uh, Vice Chair Safai, uh, Supervisor Chan, and uh, Supervisor Stephanie. Uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to demonstrate and uh, describe the increase in the number of appeal applications for all types of appeals that are that were received by the Assessment Appeals Board, uh, considering the Financial District, Soma, and the Embarcadero. Um, at this time, I'm going to share my screen to show you my presentation. Um, the Assessment Appeals Board annual filing period is between July 2nd through September 15th of each year, and majority of our applications are received during this period, uh, focusing on all types of property um, received during from the Financial District, uh, Soma, and the Bacadero. Um, excuse me. The we received um, the AV received 894 applications by September 30th for these considered uh, areas. The total assessed value for these areas uh, was about 37,304,000,000. The total opinion of value was nearly 21,878,000,000. Uh, uh, the difference between the two, as you can see, is about $15 billion, and the potential tax impact would be about $182 million. Uh, this is if the, the, the potential tax impact would be if every single um, assessment was that was filed by the taxpayer or the agent was lowered to their requested value as their opinion of value. Uh, the financial district settlement and the Bacadero assumes or account for approximately 35% of the appeals application that was received by the AAB. Um, as of September 30th of 2022, we did receive 2,577 new applications. And again, financial district the SOMA and the Embarcaderos accounted for about 35% of the appeals received. Um, an analysis was conducted comparing and uh, determined the increase in the number of appeals received comparing September 30th of each year, as well as uh, previous fiscal year, year ends 
to September 30th of 2022. Um, as of 2019 and, and prior to the pandemic, AAB only received 248 new appeals applications in these areas. The number of appeals gradually increased over the years with the most significant increase in considering September 2019 to September 30th of 2022. Uh, comparing the compared September 2019 to compare, uh, September 2022, the number of appeal applications increased by about 260%. Um, but I also did compare the fiscal year and to September 30th, as you can see on my PowerPoint slide. Um, fiscal year 19, 20, the entire year, entire fiscal year to September 30th, the first quarter of this uh, this year, fiscal year increased about 174% um, and so forth. Uh, with that, I do appreciate your time and thank you. Um, I do welcome your questions if you have any. Sorry, Supervisor Safai had stepped out for a minute. Um, colleagues, did you have any questions? Okay, no, thank you so much for, well, Supervisor Safai's back. Did you have any questions? No, I just, um, I did have one question. So, are you, and you might have already hit on this part, I'm, I apologized. Is there, are you seeing an in increase in the number of applications for reassessments from from last year to this year or from 2019 to now we understand that a lot of the leases are coming up this fall and so as those leases come up um, and vacancies start to increase is that is this what you just said okay I'm sorry so if you've already asked that question then I don't I won't ask it again huh so you did, okay. So as those vacancies start to increase, we're anticipating there's going to be a, a surge in assessment appeals. Are you hearing or feeling or seeing anything to that effect? If you're talking about this fall, we won't feel the effect until next uh, filing period. Um, as previously stated, our filing period is only between July 2nd through September 15th of each year. And so, that's so already, it's already closed. For this year, it has, yeah. yes. Right. Okay. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what the impact is next year. Thank you. I don't have anything else. Um, I just have some closing statements. I don't know if any, if Supervisor uh, Stephanie has any closing statements, but I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I uh, really appreciated. What? Oh, all right. Mr. Halipa, is there any public comment? So weird. Okay. Nope, I got it. Okay, members of the public who wish to speak on both these hearings and are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, right along the curtains, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 and the meeting ID of 2499-557-9925, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. For those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and as your queue to begin your comments. Uh, yeah, if you begin speaking, I'll start your time. Okay, one quick question. Um, I've heard a lot of percentages, like uh, the 15% decline in average commercial rent, and I was wondering, are these inflation-adjusted dollars or are these constant dollars? Because 
yeah, it kind of leaves me at a loss. Uh, and I wanted to say there's uh, ideally uh, organic uh, evolution of the economy, and obviously that's not uh, typically what we see because um, routine, it's routinely disrupted by all manner of politics, so you cannot successful, successfully legislate or dictate consumer taste and market demand. Of course, broccoli is good for you, but uh, I wouldn't force you to eat it. Um, and it... Uh, seems um, kind of snobbish and elitist to exclude popular food chains and other retailer and uh, well retailers besides in San Francisco's traditionally like working class neighborhoods. I've heard it was done in France, but uh, to preserve the French culture of the neighborhoods, but uh, I don't believe we should want to uh, accomplish that here where our commercial corridors are concerned um, to preserve the, the character that con uh, currently exists because it uh, isn't very, you know, it's not too well right now. Um, the Galleria Mall, for example, has a, about two occupants, I believe, and there are about a dozen vacancies on each of the two floors. Is that it? No, 30 seconds. Keep going. Okay, great. Um, Sorry, I've recently had the opportunity to, to visit a number of countries and cities in a Scandinavia and the Baltics and their economies seem to be doing much better by comparison. I'd say San Francisco and I don't know how many other American cities look like uh, they've been hit by a neutron bomb. I mean, uh, at least here you've got bodies like literally in the streets. You've got people that look like refugees in tents. You have... Uh... Speaker's time has elapsed. Pardon? Uh, yeah, speaker's time has elapsed. Oh, okay. Yeah, so sorry to cut you off, but we are timing uh, each speaker at two minutes. Okay, seeing no further speakers here in the chamber, Mr. Lamb, can you unmute our caller, please? So, supervisors, uh, I heard Tad uh, give a presentation at a small business, and um, and I heard him give uh, one to y'all. And as usual. Uh, the Board of Supervisors is not paying attention to our dirty streets, the crime on our streets, our Walgreens closing, CVS is closing, right there by 7th and Market, Trinity Plaza, Whole Foods being impacted by thieves, are giving $40 million to some uh, urban alchemy practitioners. These discussions that they're having are just a waste of time, much like the one we had with the housing element. There you all give us one minute. Here you all give us two minutes. While you all talk utter garbage, Y'all show your ignorance because y'all know very little about economics. And what about the stimulus money? I want to know how many millions of dollars y'all wasted. How many millions of dollars y'all wasted? Don't wave your hand, I can see it.
I think that does it for that commenter. Um, Mr. Lamp, do we have any uh, further speakers? Uh, hello, supervisors. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a cold. Uh, this is Sharky Laguana, president of the San Francisco Small Business Commission, speaking here today on my own behalf, not on behalf of the commission. I uh, wanted to uh, thank you, Chair Safai, for chairing this uh, hearing, and uh, Supervisors Ronan and Chan, thank you for your involvement as well. And Supervisor Stephanie, thank you for uh, bringing this uh, to our collective attention. Um, I just wanted to say while Supervisor Safai was out, we saw a slide that there was an increase in appeals of 260% from the prior year, which was a doubling from the year before. Uh, I suspect that uh, that doubling is going to continue for a while. Uh, and so uh, uh, I am uh, deeply concerned about the city's economic uh, situation here with respect to uh, the, we have an analysis from uh, Ted that says, uh, you know, one potential outcome here is $181 million uh, deficit to our budget. Uh, of course, that's what we have right now on the books in, in terms of what people are looking for in reassessments. But that could actually worsen, uh, and there's all sorts of second-order, third-order impacts. So uh, I just want to alert everybody to the fact that this is a very significant and serious issue that will impact the budgets of countless nonprofits and uh, various organizations that uh, count on that money in the budget. And so we really need to listen very carefully uh, to the businesses that pay those taxes and do everything we can to uh, help right this ship. And again, I thank you for calling this hearing and uh, enabling all of us to uh, uh, see where we're at right now. Thank you. Thank you much, Sharky Laguana, for your comments. Um, Ms. Okay. And that does complete our telephonic queue. Okay, great. Thank you. Really appreciate the presentation from the controller and the economist today, along with the assessor and the assessment appeals board. Um, thanks for all my colleagues. So I think this was a really helpful conversation. Um, really appreciate level setting this now. I think it's our job to begin to think about the impact that this is going to have on our city. The one thing I will say, and I really appreciate Supervisor Rona, Supervisor Chan, Supervisor Stephanie um, being engaged, fully engaged on this, is that we all have to be on the same page. I mean, there's going to be some really hard decisions that we have to make in the next six months. And it, whether we're on the committee or not on the committee, these are hard decisions that we have to make collectively. And there's going to be some very serious trade-offs um, you know, we're, we're at an inflection point. I mean, when we look at some of the slides that were presented to us today, even in the worst economic time, the Great Recession, the dot-com bust, this exceeds that, and the level of recovery is going to be a lot slower, and it's going to be paced in a much different way because of the nature of work. That might change. Uh, employers might begin to have uh, more demands put on workers or, or definitely be a lot more creative in their work patterns and that ultimately could impact our overall economy. 
We haven't even spoken today about how it impacts our public transportation and how it impacts all the other services because if the demand for those services decrease, then the revenues for those services decrease. And if the revenues for those services decrease, it's kind of a never-ending cycle um, which impacts us overall. So I think we're at a real inflection point. I think the assessment appeals are going to increase dramatically. I think that we only touched on one revenue source today, which was property tax. We're going to get that information in the coming months. But I still am encouraged because I know that if we all swim in the same direction, if we all are open to really thoughtful ideas, doesn't mean we're going to have to agree with everything that's presented to us, but that we have to make some tough decisions. I think we can begin to get our city uh, back on track. And so I, I appreciate, thank you, Supervisor Stephanie, for, for co-chairing the working group uh, with me. Thank you for all the engagement involvement that you've already shown. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Chan, for thinking about this, Supervisor Ronan, for thinking about this. And I think that at the end of the day, we're gonna work with the mayor's office. We're gonna present some solutions to this body, many of which can be done legislatively here at the board. And we'll see what ultimately we do that's, I think, in the best direction of the city. But I, I, I am still hopeful. I know it's gonna be some hard years and some hard times. Uh, but I think collectively, if we come together, we can make the right decisions that are good for our city. Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you. Yes, I want to thank Chair Ronan for accommodating my hearing request. And thank you to you, Supervisor Safai, for your hearing as well. And thank you to our Chief Economist, Ted Egan, and the Controller's Office, and Assessor Recorder, Walking Taurus, and then Alistar Gibson for the presentations. I think that they are very informative. And as Mr. Laguana stated in public comment, uh, I too am deeply concerned about the city's economic outlook. And I think the purpose for this hearing was to really do a deep dive on one level of income um, that is very important to our general fund and our, our budgeting abilities. And the idea of losing $200 million or a $2 million reduction in our general fund um, over the coming years is something we want to avoid. And for me to really understand the landscape here, what are we looking at, what are the problems, and then to get to the why. And that, of course, I think will, um, this is one of the things we're doing with the working group, to really understand what are the levers we can pull here at City Hall to make sure that, you know, as we look at our economy and we know that we're in trouble in some areas, that we know exactly what we need to do to fix it. So I want to thank everyone for the hearing, and I look forward to continuing the discussion. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. So, Madam Chair, we'd like to come back to the committee early next year to present solutions that we're working on with the working group. And just so everyone knows, I mean, we're meeting with a, a, a whole host of folks that are property owners, business owners, business community, but we're also engaging with organized labor and others. Um, so we will like to come back to this committee soon in the beginning of the year. So we'd like to continue this item to the call of the chair. That sounds great. Um, and did you make that motion? Yes, I'd like to make that motion. Can we have a roll call vote? Uh, yes, on that motion offered by Vice Chair Safai, that uh, one or both of these hearings, Mr. Vice Chair? Um, I, I think we both, that's okay. fine, yeah. Sure thing, uh, so on that motion offered by Vice Chair Safai, that, that okay? both yeah, of these hearings, uh, be continued to the call of the chair. Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan. 
Chan, I. Chair Ronan. I. Ronan, I. We have three eyes. Those motions pass unanimously. Mr. Clerk, do we have any other items on the agenda today? Uh, Madam Chair, that concludes our business. The meeting is adjourned.